Hi, I'm Jay Little, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast because they don't have me on enough. My name's Sam Stewart, and I don't listen to the Order 66 podcast because they don't have any hot sauce. Greetings, I am Darth Pseudonym, and you will never discover the secrets of the Order 66 podcast if you do not listen. <laughs> Broadcast live on D20 Radio's Justin TV channel. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and MapsOfMastery.com. Hello and well met, Gamer Nation. What is up? Uh, GM Chris here, and it is, uh, gosh, Tuesday, July 23rd, uh, and we are coming at you for episode 14 of the Order 66 podcast. And this is a strange episode. I say that for all of our episodes. All of our episodes are strange, aren't they, Dave? Yeah, they are, in a certain sense of the word. I mean, I, I they're all kind of a little unusual, but... Um, so, dude, it's like déjà vu. So you're in Manila <laughs> again. Again, remember when, we did this, remember when we did this the last time? Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, you, you are, <laughs> you are, you are in Manila again. Um, and so I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you. This is kind of cool, um, and I'm glad you can sort of host this episode with me. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> I think the majority of it's going to be your uh, pre-recorded bit, though. I just have have a feeling. I I, I do have a feeling, and that's about to get even stranger. So for those who may be tuning in for the very first time, this is the Order 66 podcast, the original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing. And um, we had a hell of a show planned for you guys tonight. We um, had been pimping it up for a while, and basically now that the core rulebook is out, Dave, you know, we... we, um, as as a kind of a historical precedent for us, when a new book comes out, we love to have the the lead designer, lead developer come on and take listener questions. And so, two weeks ago, we opened the floodgates and said, "All right, guys, give us your questions." And did you track any of the threads we had going for those questions? No, with all my travel, I really didn't. I really didn't look into it that much. Um, I like, like I wasn't planning on being a part of the show, really. Yeah, I, I know. So it's um, we had scores and scores and scores of questions coming in from all across the gamer nation. Um, people anxious to to talk to to Sam Stewart, um, lead developer uh, for the Edge of the Empire Core Rulebook, and Jay Little, lead designer, um, both of whom we've had on the show before. And uh, so. Obviously, since Dave's in Manila, um, and we had so much to cover previously, um, I had taken the time to sit down with you know via Skype with with Sam and Jay and plow through questions. 
Um, now, we, we had Jay for a brief period of time, much less time than we had with Sam. So we had Jay on for a little while. And, and, and of course, Sam and I had already started and been talking for a good while. And we were plowing through the questions. And we got about halfway through our questions. And then two crazy things happened. Um, the first is that we came close to a three-hour mark, <laughs> which, is, which is an issue. Um, the second is that, um, and this has got to tell you Sam Stewart's dedication, the dude was doing, was actually up at the office working and talking to us in the evening. And apparently they're in a brand new building and the fire alarm went off. Um, and, uh, you know, we were broadcasting this interview live. I don't know if you heard that alarm, Dave. Um, I think I was talking to my wife when all that went down and I muted the show and I kind of tuned out. It was this piercing. We're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Um, uh, so the bottom line is they couldn't shut it off. And so those two factors, um, we made the call to, to cut our questions there, um, and pick it up later in the week, uh, with, uh, the continuation of the interview. And so bottom line is what you're going to be hearing tonight is part one of the developer questions for the edge of the empire core rulebook. Um, and, uh, you know, cut, cut into it and, uh, uh, later on this week, we'll be releasing part two, but we, we didn't want to sit on it. We knew we had to get this out to you. Plus, we really don't want to release like a five-hour episode to you guys. So, Ish. yeah. There's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. But um, uh, we had an absolute great time with Sam and Jay, and uh, I'm anxious for you guys to to hear the answers to all of your questions. So, Dave, uh, what do you say we kick this pig into high gear? Let's do it. Well, we're going to start with some of this. Do it. And now, Clone Trooper Poetry. A flash of fire, and one goes down. Explosive charge, and one goes down. A blaster bolt, and one goes down. Spear in the neck, and one goes down. Clone Trooper Armor. Isn't it time we stop using the lowest bidder? Clone Trooper Poetry. <laughs> That's a neat little change. Did M. Night Shyamalan write that? So what a twist! Well done, Philoback, well done. And we have a rebuttal. And now, Stormtrooper Haiku. Here, gone, like seafoam, one last elderly Jedi... The boss took him out. Stormtrooper Haiku. Okay, that is absolutely hilarious. Um, <laughs> um, well done. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, I want to get going, man. What do you say we get to announcements? All right, let's go. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Well, it is announcements time. Announcements. Announcements. Uh, um, you know, it, it, it just wouldn't be an announcements if we didn't do a featured podcast this week. I, I agree. Yes, and um, 
So once again, our city screams for a podcast, and from the shadowy rooftops, Punching for Justice appears. Of course, they're devoted to third edition mutants and masterminds, boys and girls. Dan and Kyle fire their battering rams of gaming justice in the recently released episode 15, Roll 20 for Hero. They discuss the recent energy weapons and heavy weapons gadget guides and take a spin with the recently improved quick start character generator and... We get to hear how Dan is defeated by Arch Nemesis of Concrete. Yeah, you'll have to listen. It's a great episode with a lot of knowledge and a pretty good smack of uh, hilarity. So uh, you guys check it out. You can find that, of course, with more great podcasts. A couple less than there were yesterday (laughs) at (laughs) d20radio.com. Oh, did we have some pod fades? Yes. Yes, I uh you know, I'm sitting in Manila and I'm sick by the way and I just have this time on my hands in the evening since I can't really go out. And um so yeah, I started cleaning up the forums and deleting podcasts that hadn't really had any updates for since 2012, for example. So yeah, we lost 3. Well, so yeah, that's But there there're 3 that nobody ever talked about anyway, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still have a good twenty shows on the network to listen to. So oh, yeah, we, we're still, we're still, uh, yeah, we're. St- I think we're sitting at seventeen right now. So yeah, we're uh, we are all good to go, and and uh, yeah, can't wait. Uh, speaking of can't wait, <laughs> um, juicy bits of web goodness time. Okay, boys and girls, the Any Awards are forthcoming. Vote. Vote oh now. my gosh, the Any Awards are forthcoming. Um, so let's let's talk about this. We first of all want to take the time to congratulate. We have we have several Any Award nomination announcements. And and Dave, for people who may be listening and don't know what the Any Awards are, um, it's the the N World RPG Awards uh, at Gen Con, which happens at Gen Con every single year. Um, and and it, it's one of the more prestigious uh, awards that can be won in the RPG industry. You know, and the yes. best thing is it's entirely fan voted, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, there are judges that 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 glean the nominations out of all the submissions, but after that, it's fan voting. So we want to congratulate first and foremost D Twenty Radio Network's very own Numenera Podcast Transmissions from the Ninth World for their nomination for Best Podcast. Any way to go, guys? Um, yes, indeed. Also, the network, in the form of Gamer Nation Studios, our sister game company, um, got another nomination I'm rather proud of uh, for our freshman game release, Edition Wars, which released last year uh, and was nominated, uh, one of the six nominations, for Best RPG-Related Product. Uh, So, woot woot. Um, Two other huge big nominations, our very own Roll for Initiative host and scribe, DM Vince, got a nomination in the best free game category for his RPG, Mazes and Perils, um, which is this homage to classic fantasy RPG. It's brilliant, Um, and you can download it for free. Um, 
Also, erstwhile scribe over at the GSA, C. Stephen Ross, a.k.a. Agent 790, got a nomination for the best blog for his personal blog, Star Wars Edge of the Empire blog, Triumph and Despair. Um, So the network, guys, has four Annie nominations, and the voting is open now, and you've got to go vote. Please go vote. Head to any dash awards.com slash vote that's e-n-n-i-e dash okay which is like the little subtraction symbol awards.com slash vote voting ends july 31st so get there and please put in a number one for uh for for transmissions from the ninth world for edition wars uh for mazes and perils and of course for triumph and despair in the blog section Vote now. Go, go, go. Support the network. Help us bring home some minis, guys. All right, man. What do we got next? Ah, from our our regular, regular Star Wars Wednesdays from Sterling Hershey. You know, as we uh, like to do, we kind of take a look over the shoulder of our our own friendly Star Wars gaming legend, Sterling Hershey. D20 Radio's own Sterling Hershey. Mm -hmm. And uh, this week he taps away at his... Star Wars Wednesday blog and comes up with the recent FFG article or interview featuring, well, him (laughs) in his role uh, as an author on the forthcoming Beyond the Rim adventure module, uh, which I think is supposed to release fourth quarter, if I am not mistaken. And uh, that interview is is basically a giant tease. And you can find it at Fantasy Flight Games. Dot com, Or you can get it directly from Sterling's blog at www.sterlinghershey.com where you can find scores of other articles covered in Star Wars bling like a hut with a bedazzler. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, okay, so Sterling also relates another uh, rather unexpected announcement straight from FFG. Uh, this is Enter the Unknown. This is a, a, a source book, the first announced source book for Edge of the Empire, and it's <sighs> devoted, not surprisingly, to explorers. Yes. The announcement article reveals details about the little book, which is scheduled for a, a fourth quarter release. Three new specializations, which are, uh, you know, I, get, I don't know what they're going to be, but. Well, they're for, we know they're for the explorer career, obviously. Yeah. Right, right, right. But, I mean, you're going to find three new specializations. You'll find some signature abilities, dude, new equipment, vehicles, dude, signature Signature abilities. They're like, they yeah. talk about it in the article. It's like, it's like you know, you know, the bottom tier of every of each talent tree, you've got those really high expensive talents, you know, that are badass. Yeah, that's where you get your plus one to your ability right. scores. These signature abilities are these incredibly powerful things that can be substituted in the bottom rows of talent trees. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I know I'm just so just totally Jones and over it. I can't believe it, but you guys need to check yeah. out this article. Um, go check it out right now at what, what, what's the website, man, where they can get all this fine news. www.fantasyflightgames.com. Ooh, I'm so excited. Oh, yep. oh, I absolutely absolutely love it oh man okay um while you're at the computer uh be sure to head over to the gaming security agency 
the GSA, the, here you go, Dave, the thermal detonator to D20 Radio's carefully crafted bounty hunter disguise. Oh, I love that you're changing these every show now. (laughs) Uh, Which continues to be the best and most prolific go-to place to get articles and PCs fan-generated content for the Edge of the Empire. couple recent highlights. Uh, Donovan Morningfire, Agent 94, uh, brings a new piece of home-brewed equipment uh, for Edge of the Empire. Um, in the long-running equipment lab section, the Neuronic Whip, which is this nasty melee weapon uh, ready for NPC uh, slavers that the PCs are going up against. <laughs> um, also, Jaeger Grita, um, Agent 1138, debuts the first in a brand-new article series, Touring the Rim, Cartol's Emporium of Useful Things, uh, where Jaeger has created this fun mobile shadow port location that exists as an old Nebulon B frigate, um, replete with ready-to-go NPC characters, resources, adventure hooks, all of it ready to be dropped directly into your game. Uh, Exciting start to this series, and I can't wait to see what else he does with it um, as he continues. Um, But you can check all this out and so much more at uh, gsa.thegamernation.org. And, uh, you know, we have a... Oh, wait a second. Um, while, you're, while you're... I have an audible for, for the GSA. Check out Keith uh, Dalby's uh, string of articles that he started, which is about building an RPG from the ground up, because we haven't announced it yet, but we're going to help Keith publish his 3D system. Oh, yes. That is on the, that and, is on the plan. Uh, we, we recently made an announcement that Jay Little... Who you're about to hear is going to be working with us to publish his uh, Tall Tales role-playing game, which uses a, a, a brand new system that he's created called Triple Threat, which mm-hmm. we're really excited about. Oh yes! But we're also been working with Keith for over a year now, right? On, on his on his 3D system, and it's got a lot of promise. So uh, you guys check out that series. It's kind of like a developer blog. You guys check that out. So I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, if I didn't bring that up. But um, anyway, Kickstarter, yes. We oh, talked about this last show. And, you know, we've been doing this Order 66 podcast since January of 2008, right? Five and a half years. Yeah, five and a half years. Many of those early years, you know what? We had listeners who took part in our partnership program with master, with Maps of Mastery, master cartographer Christopher West. And, you know, that was like six bucks a month, and you got PDFs of map tiles and and, uh, you know, helped you contribute to the show. And we paid our Ventrilo server costs and all that stuff out of that. And, and hosting, hosting provider. provider. Yeah. yeah. ASCAP, ASCAP licensing. Yep. All that stuff. Yeah. We, we, you know, but that, that well kind of ran dry and we, um, you know, we got started building games and we got focused on other things and we quit sending map tiles out and, you know, the, <laughs> they just kind of faded. And then of course, Saga Edition went by. So, but we we had enough tucked away to keep the show running for a good little while. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- we did. Thanks and, to and, those, you know. thanks to those partners. But I mean, what? A couple weeks ago, like you, you contacted me. It's like, dude, there's only a few nickels left in the piggy bank. <laughs> yeah, we had like, yeah, exactly. We had like, we were. Down, I noticed that like four people got auto canceled, and I was like, wait a second, we're down to like three guys that that are doing any, uh, you know. Yeah. And God bless them, you know, they haven't gotten anything in a year, and. And uh, they're still contributing. Great, but you, we can't run the show on twelve dollars a month. So um, we said, "All right, what the hell?" And, and my my mixing board. If you guys have noticed, you know, I, I I come back into the room after Stormtrooper Poetry or whatever, and I and I touch my mixing board, and I 
and the damn thing arc shorts if I touch it in the wrong way and it goes out for like four minutes. <laughs> well, dude, my my mixer and mic is five years old, and I think yours is older. Um, yeah, I've been podcasting since uh, 2004, Yeah, back when it was original and when podcasting was barely anything. So, yeah, I mean, that thing and my mic have been, have been troopers for almost 10 years, but, yeah, they are – they are dying. So, you know, your your computer's so freaking old that you know <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it to suffice to say we need some new stuff. And so we started this simple Kickstarter to raise about a thousand dollars just so I could get a new mixing board microphone you could get, you know, five hundred bucks toward a computer. And cover and, and cover the cost of running the show for a full year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And you know, we uh we wrote a couple of modules, home based, and you know, you said you'd run some Skype games. We we hope we'd we'd raise a thousand dollars. Well, we raised a thousand dollars in twelve hours, and um, <laughs> it's been off to the races since then. And and we've got you know two hundred and I think like two hundred and eighteen or something people right now. Two hundred and thirty three as I pull it up. Two hundred and thirty three people, at- and some of them are not listeners. By the way, I've been starting to get emails in by saying, "Hey, you guys have all this RPG stuff that you're giving away really for twenty bucks," and people are starting to back even though they don't even listen to the show. <laughs> and um. Um, Anyway, 233 backers. We're up over 810% of goal now. God. And we want to profusely thank all of you guys for your support. We're absolutely amazed. I the am, overstretched goals keep coming. So do the rewards. I am so uh, humbled. So, I am so humbled. I don't even know where to begin. I yeah. can't even I can't even fathom. I thought it was a snowball's chance we might be able to raise a grand just to cover some new equipment and and fees for a year. Um I know, dude. It's, it's amazing. So you're going to write a module. I'm going to write a module. Yes. John Stevens. Uh, AKA, AKA Donovan Morningfire, yes. Yep. Garrett Crow, Ben Erickson, all, of course, D20 radio partners uh, are going to be creating modules for the swag pack. And that's where this guy came from. He's like, am I really going to get four or five Star Wars modules for 20 bucks? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, you know, I mean, they're 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 capable to be played with Edge of the Empire, but uh, yep. you know, and uh, you know, I made some Roll Twenty tokens uh, that you can use for just about you know any online application, and there's a whole bunch of other you know cool stuff. But the exciting part is that Charlie from Artisan Dice. We've we've talked about Artisan Dice before, yeah. Yes. Um, has signed on to be a title sponsor for the convention that we want to do, and we were going to do it if we if we got around nine thousand. Well, our, Charlie came in and said, "Hey, dude, I'm just going to sponsor you." Okay, boom. So we're going to do the convention. It's <sighs> it's going to be freaking amazing. So we have all you guys to thank for that to even begin to have the kind of funds to put on a convention. We still need to sell some tickets so we know you know who's coming. Who's but, coming? But we're going to do it whether we have two people show up. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that's the big thing. So all this extra money that we have raised, and quite frankly, we're really scratching our heads as to what to do with. Um, yeah, we could bank it and just, you know, hey, we got nine years of <laughs> of, of show support here. Um, you know, we wanted to do something more with that for you guys. Um, and as Dave said, you know, like John Stevens, Garrett, Ben – um, I also have a new Audible announcement. We have another module that's going to get added to the mix, written by Kevin Frain, uh, Rikoshi on our forums, who is a, nice. a noted and published fiction author. Um, uh, so that's another module we're going to add to the mix. And yeah, that's great, these free rewards, but we don't know what we're going to do with all this cash. And uh, 
finally it hit us. You know, we've been tossing around the idea of having a convention for you, the members of the Gamer Nation, right here in Dallas, Texas. Um, and we took us a while, but we ironed out the details. And the date we have right now uh, is going to be March 14th, 15th, and 16th of 2014. We will be having Gamer Nation Con right here in Plano, Texas, uh, which is a subsi- which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, and if you are a backer, you will receive half price on tickets. Yes. Yes, fifteen bucks. It's available right now on the Kickstarter page. Yes, fifteen bucks. Um, tickets will normally be thirty dollars. Um, that's for the whole weekend. Um, uh, but if you are a backer. Um, for 15 bucks, you will get a ticket for the whole weekend, and that will include a very nice swag bag. Uh, more details are coming. We are in the process of trying to um, get a special guest to come. Um, and, of course, we are going to have events galore. We already have confirmed event volunteers that are going to be running Edge of the Empire, that are going to be running classic Dungeons & Dragons, that are going to be running Pathfinder, that are going to be running Fiasco. What else? Uh, Mutants and Masterminds. Mutants and Masterminds. Um, Yes, uh, there's going to be events galore. Oh, yeah, and we're going to have a little proto, like a proto design contest or, or game test session on Sunday morning where we're going to have game designers like, you know, that have prototypes of games to come in on Sunday to, to show off and play test with the, with the convention attendees. Uh, uh, let's see, we've got... Oh, don't forget the maps from Christopher West. By the way, go check out Christopher West's ca- uh, Kickstarter for his Numenera map. Oh, yeah, that's another um, thing, too. Yes. Yeah, as part of the swag pack, we forgot to mention that with the modules and the tokens. Yes, we have a whole slew of new map tiles from Christopher West that he has graciously provided as part of the swag pack for all backers. Yeah, including a nice blank desert poster map that you can use for just about anything. Um, but I lost my train of thought. Basically, we've got so much stuff. Reaper... I, I talked to Reaper yesterday, and they're trying to clear their schedule, and he's pretty sure he can do it. But I think Brian's going to be out and do a, a Kickstarter, you know, how to do a, a successful Kickstarter panel on Saturday for, for game design and for gaming uh, projects. And they're going to have paint and take there. So that's going to be kind of fun. Yes, it is. Now, in terms of the actual attendees, Dave, we are, at least currently with the facility we've got, we have an upper limit. Um, yes, 180 people. 180 people. Um, so if this is something you guys are wanting to do to get to Dallas, um, uh, and, 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 and do this, uh, do it because I, I, I don't know how quick, quickly those tickets are going to fill up. Um, but you know, obviously this is a, a small, small convention and, uh, we'd love to meet all you guys, man. We would love to meet all you guys. So if you'd like to come down, uh, spend a weekend, get to game with us, get to know us. Um, it is going to be epic and I am completely flabbergasted that we're going to be able to do this and that you guys have made it possible for us to do this through your support of D20 Radio and the Gamer Nation. Yep. Oh, by the way, guest of honor, Jay Little. Oh, oh so we have the confirmation on that. That is confirmed. <laughs> Excellent. So you heard it here. Um, first, Gamer Nation Con, year one. Again, March 14th through the 16th, 2014, in Plano, Texas, with special guest of honor, Jay Little, who will come down here. We'll have an event with Jay. Uh, I do believe he'll be running some games as well. Um, so if you would like to play Edge of the Empire with the man who designed it, I don't know. That could be an incentive. Yeah. Yep. 
And you know what? You know what we'll do is we'll we'll get some. Um, I will try and work on a hotel deal somewhere close, and then I'll put it up in the forums for you guys, and you guys can start trying to. If you uh, if you don't want to get a room all by yourself, you can maybe share. Yes. Yes. And obviously, guys, we're still gathering all the details on this. I mean, we were only able to get commitment for the space at the price we wanted, what, two days ago? Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's only nine days left in the Kickstarter. So we, you know, we're, we're, we're getting this out there, but it is going to happen. Um, but full details will get up, obviously. And uh, be sure to pledge to the Kickstarter so you can get that add on and support the cast. Um, how can they find the Kickstarter? If you, you know, obviously, if you guys head to Kickstarter, you can just do a keyword search for Order 66. That's Order Space 66, and you can locate us. Um, yep. Pledge! Get some free swag and the opportunity to get a discounted ticket for Gamer Nation Con. That's right, man. 35 bucks gets you, what now, six modules? I see somebody else in the chat saying that they want to make one for us. So <laughs> you're looking at a whole bunch of maps, six modules, some Roll20 tokens... Uh, uh, Wayne Basta threw in uh, his uh, short story. I forget the title of it. Um, and, you know, and and a ticket to the con, which is going to be thirty bucks if you did it later. So you know, heck, just saying, do it, do it, do it. Uh, and again, as Dave mentioned, while you're on Kickstarter, be sure to do a keyword search uh, for. Uh, you can actually do a keyword search for Numenera. Um, a lot of people know that uh, uh, show sponsor, friend of the show, um, and one of the men's man who's contributing uh, uh, swag uh, to the to the to the swag pack uh, for the Order sixty six Kickstarter. Christopher West um, has got a new Kickstarter of his own. Chris uh, is the man who's done all the maps for Monty Cook's upcoming Numenera RPG, and he is doing a Kickstarter um, to get a poster map uh, maps of the Ninth World, and they are absolutely gorgeous. Um, so if you do a, uh, a keyword search on Kickstarter for uh, Maps of Mastery or Christopher West or Numenera, you can find it. Um, he has already met his funding goal, but uh, uh, this is a really great price for some really cool maps. So take a look at that, too. And for social media, you guys know you can find us on the Facebook. Even though it's a fad and it's going to go away, still look for us. D20 Radio has a page up there. It's open for anyone to join. Gamer Nation Studios obviously has a page up there as well. You can find me up there on the Facebook. You can find Chris, or you can find us on Twitter. He's at GM Chris. I am at GM Dave. Oh, yes. Yep. Oh, yes. Stay in the know. Stay in the know. Well, with that, guys, uh, we're going to get to the meat of this show, uh, this incredible meat, and uh, going to transition over to... Um, Part one of of the interview uh, with uh, you know we we'd already, at this point in time we'd, we we were transitioning and we'd already been talking to Sam for a little bit and we were bringing Jay on as he came in uh, but again Sam Stewart uh, lead developer for the Edge of the Empire Core Rulebook and Jay Little uh, lead designer so uh, here we go buckle up Ooh. he doesn't seem to take a hint this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. Oh, welcome to Messages from the Edge. So normally, uh, this is our regular show segment where we take the time to answer your game and rules questions about the system. Tonight, however, as we've discussed... 
This will be an especially long Messages from the Edge segment because, uh, uh, what? This show is all about questions. Yeah? Yes? Absolutely. Yes, so so, so we're there. Um, And gladly, Order 66 will be the ones doing the asking this time around, not the answering on your behalf. And, uh, you know, Sam, obviously we've already welcomed you to the show, but now we want to welcome on our second special guest of the evening, because, you know, it wouldn't be complete if we didn't have two amazing game designers and developers here to do this real answering. Jay Little, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, as usual. Ah, I miss you, man. It's been like three episodes since we've had you on. I know, I know. Absence makes the heart grow something, something. <laughs> So I, I'm curious, um, has the show finally gotten some hot sauce? Because I heard that there was a disturbing lack of hot sauce. <laughs> Disappointingly, no. At least not on my end. I will Damn. mail you hot. You, we have really great hot sauce down here. See, up in up in the frigid north where you guys live, you don't have hot sauce. You think you have hot sauce, but you, you don't have hot sauce. Come on, we got sriracha. It's the uh, best hot sauce. Okay, you have Asian sauce. <laughs> <laughs> what what we don't have is barbecue sauce. No, you don't. No, you Sad. don't. Um, actually, there's a really good barbecue place in the Mall of America that is about Texas quality. Been, yeah, but it's the Mall of America. Yeah, no Minnesota actually goes to the Mall of America. Maybe they should. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> if I knew they had such good barbecue, maybe I will now. See, they, and now you know. And knowing, and knowing is half the battle, G.I. Joe. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So we are off to a good start. Um, <laughs> Actually, we're off to a good middle, remember? Yeah, well, a good start to our questions for the evening, really. Um, so buckle up, Gamer Nation. It's about to get crazier because um, the questions are going to flow heavy tonight. But guys, how did listeners get us these questions? You know, well, well, most of them traveled to our forums and posted them up. Uh, and for future episodes, you can do that too. Um, head over to www.d20radio.com slash forums. Register. Head to the Order 66 podcast boards where you will find a messages from the edge thread. Um, you can also email questions uh, to us at gmchris at d20radio.com uh, or gmdave at d20radio.com when he's on the podcast. You know, I'm just saying. Um, you can also, if you're brave enough, leave us the questions via voicemail on the D20 Radio hotline at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. So if you guys are cool with it, let's start with our first questions right now. Lay it on. Okay. Okay. So we had a lot of questions come in, as we said. (laughs) An awful lot. And I've tried my best to categorize them into a decent category. So the first questions we have um, are going to really around dice mechanics and core gameplay. Um, several questions about just the core of the rule set, the dice, the mechanics. Um, our first up comes from listener Ilowin, who had a profound core mechanics question. He insisted that we ask you um, both, what is your favorite flavor of pie? You know, the, this is a really good question. It's something that came up a lot during the development process. Uh, we had to put a lot of time and thought into this because, you know, pie is a big commitment. And it turns out that my favorite would actually be uh, boysenberry first, but a close second would be uh, Dutch apple if you go with vanilla bean ice cream. So, fruit, that, you so know, fruit, I know that's different. Pies. It's a little non-traditional for people, but hopefully they understand that that kind of expresses my indie design background. Yeah. Well, the fruit pie methodology of game design it has its roots in indie game design, so I get it. Yeah. I get it. 
All right, Sam, are you along the same lines? Or I mean, favorite flavor of pie? Oh no, I like uh, pecan pie. I'm all about the uh, establishment and Ooh. working within the working for the man. Is that a pecan pie thing? Yeah. That's a pecan pie yeah, thing. Yeah, well, here you can see one of the fundamental differences in the way that Sam and I approach basically everything from the culinary to the design. And uh, some would argue that's why we work so well together, but really that's that's why we can't stand each other at all. <laughs> some would argue that that's why we never have uh, we never eat dinner at each other's houses. <laughs> Side note, though, Jay makes really good chili. Thank you, sir. Uh, you're, you know, you're it not... makes up for your lack of pie. <laughs> you guys, you guys have mentioned the the awesomeness of the of the little chili, so I you know I'll have to sample I it. Cook. I'm a damn good cook because I cook the way I GM. I fly by the seat of my pants. I do a great job, but I can never replicate the results. That's dangerous. It, it works for chili, but maybe maybe just chili. Yes. I find this lack of pie disturbing. <laughs> All right. I really hope you had that set up beforehand. Oh, no. It's nice to have a mixer. You can just do this when you want. Um, <laughs> um, I'm slow clapping for you right now. Oh, this so oh. might interfere with the mic. It, it's okay. Big props to Dono in the chat for uh, uh, setting me up for that one. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so on to some uh, some additional questions. Iloin also wants to know where did you guys come up with the symbols for the dice, the colors, and his words because it all works so perfectly. Also, how do you track destiny? Do you use the beginner's box tokens or something else? Do you want to um, start out, Jay? No, not really. <laughs> the symbols for the dice, I'll tell you what. This was something that, wow, a lot of time was spent on this. I remember that there were a number of different iterations uh, because both internally and externally, we needed symbols that were going to be iconic, easily identifiable, and if there's one thing that I learned from the development of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is the symbols had to hold up to various sizes of scale. Um, mm. a, a great example of that would actually be one reason we don't feature D10s in Edge of the Empire is we realized that the surface area of the D10, especially at the peak, did not do a good enough job of holding the detail for an icon, which is mm. one reason why we use D12s. Uh, and bigger surface area. And I think the, the design team did a great job coming up with uh, really catchy, splashy icons that are very, very clear at the different sizes that they scale and pretty easy to distinguish when you are rolling all the dice and starting to cancel things out at the table. Makes sense. Easy. Cool. So second part, how do you guys track destiny? How do you do it, Sam? <laughs> Um, uh, because I managed to get a hands on some of the, uh, dice packs now, now I just track them using the, uh, tokens that came in the, uh, dice packs, which are the same ones that came in the beginner box. Beginner's box. But for a while we had those poker chips that you put Darth Vader's face on. Yep. <laughs> so I just had some, some double-sided poker chips for a while. And also uh, I've used Othello chips before. I use Othello chips. I, I actually really like what they did on the, uh, Game Master I guess, aid page at the back of the core rulebook where they have the two different wells, the dark side and the light side well, and you can actually just transfer beads yeah, back and forth between those. that's pretty cool. I, I've seen that done, and it, it's cool because it adds this extra visual uh, way of, of seeing the ebb and the flow. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. We talked. I know we talked about that with uh, um, uh, last last episode with Steve Horvath. Yeah, um, huge fan of that of that group sheet. And uh, yeah, one more thing to do. Okay, so continuing with dice mechanics and core gameplay, um, Knoxville Buckeye asks, "How many sets of dice do you guys find yourselves using in your personal games? Not counting the Star Wars dice app." Um, and and uh, and related, how many dice sets is the game designed to require? Um, well, the game is designed to the game is designed around the idea that um, at least one player and the GM has a um, package of dice, so two sets for the table, basically. Gotcha. Um, but uh, if if people want to have their if people want to have their own sets of dice, then you you want a little bit more, but you can make it. You can make do with one if you if you don't mind re-rolling a few of them every once in a while. But uh, one um, one set for the player, one player, one set for one GM. So honestly, two to three for the entire table. If you don't mind sharing, you shouldn't have any problems with that. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting too because the dice mix available in the dice pack. I, I bet people would be surprised to learn how long and hard we had to think of different configurations. How many dice do we include? How many of each die type? Do we have to include one of everything in the force die as well? And if we do, how many quantities? So we couldn't account for every single edge case. You can't imagine that every Wookiee is going to be, you know, brawn five to start with and then create a dice pack around that and not take into account the average or the most typical uh, uses necessary. But it, it's kind of hard for me to answer the question on how many dice do I use because when I made the mock-up dice, I had so many because we were constantly making changes to them. Some of them were stickered. Some of them were written on with Sharpies. So I had a massive number of dice. Uh, and right now, I probably have a total of six sets that I carry around in a huge bag with me. And if I'm going to be playing on the run or if I'm at a convention, I'll just make sure that I have a pocket full of dice. And then I can just pull them out and we can play with anybody. You know, scratch down a few numbers on a note card and basically play with a pocket full of dice. I actually still have the uh, beat up now beat up uh, sticker dice that we took to uh, Gen Con last year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that we sprayed liberally with um, Dulco varnish beforehand, just to hope that they wouldn't uh, deteriorate <laughs> with so much use. Dude, I've got I've got two sets, and in all the games I've run, I've never run across a situation where two sets didn't accommodate any type of role that we needed. Well, it's interesting too, because a lot of people might think that having a ton of dice is beneficial, but actually there reaches a point where you have so many dice at the table that it's, it's more cumbersome to go through them and to separate what you may or may not need. Uh, I think in a lot of times, if you keep the uh, negative dice just toward the GM and the positive dice toward the player centric side you'll find that it's a lot easier to put dice pools together, adjudicate them, and then break them up afterward so that they're ready for the next roll. Hmm. Yeah, no, um, I can, I definitely would agree with that actually. Um, although also at our tables, I know you said don't manage, mention the dice app, but um, <laughs> I think uh, um, Fisher and Cat uh, both, both use that. So it keeps things a little less cluttered as well. Half my players use the dice app. They love it. Um, I just I love that tactile feel of holding dice. I'm dice I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. I like to roll dice. 
but half my players are like, God, no, it's, I got my smartphone here. Don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. In, in, in a related question, a 71 post-step related question, he says, I ran across a situation where I didn't have enough dice to upgrade a, a final green die. Adding, you know, obviously he was probably in an all yellow situation, needed to add another green die uh, for an upgrade. Um, is the amount of dice included in the game also a limit on how many dice you can throw, or do I just need to suck it up and plop down another 14 bucks on a second pack of the packet of dice? Thanks, and thank you for making what seems to already be a great game. Well, well I think we. Oh, I, I think I think you pretty much answered that question. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think we want question. anybody to have to. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say the answer is obviously plug down the $14 and get them in the box. And if that's not enough, <laughs> plug down another 14 um, And just keep on going until you have enough dice. See, I was I was going to do the responsible company man routine and say, we don't want you to have to suck up you know, suck up anything if you don't have to. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, um, the, the components aren't a restriction. It's not like a board game where sometimes the components are actually a limitation on what you can do. I mean, there are only so many force destiny, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, destiny tokens in a dice pack. You're not restricted to that many destiny points at the table. Uh, it's just one of the numbers used to try to create the most efficient product we could. Yeah, and the other thing actually about the uh, dice app distribution, not the dice app distribution, the dice set distribution was even though we expected um, the GM and at least one other player to each have one pack of dice, we were also, especially with the beginner box, because it has the same distribution of dice, trying to anticipate what you would do if you only had one pack of dice. So there was that balancing act between the two of them as well. It was, you know, we had to make sure, well, we, right. we want to make sure that it'll work for every situation. And obviously it doesn't do perfectly, but it gets pretty close. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it should also be mentioned that, you know, we, we were talking to a lot of people who have had the core rulebook for a while now and have played for a while, but there's still a lot of people out there that their only exposure has been the beginner game. And hopefully they'll uh, understand that these dice are the exact same dice. A lot of the mechanics and a lot of the rules that they've seen are the same. And if you started with the beginner game, you really only need one additional set of dice to cover virtually any situation, which is another just great point to, to throw out there. Nope. It, um, Jay is exactly right on that one. Cool. Well, I think that answers those questions. Um, so continuing on then, uh, I think, I think we've beat dice to death. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 you really can't. You really, you really can't. Um, That's why they're made of plastic. All right. Well, let me give you let me let me give you guys a tough one then. All right. Um, a, a much more intriguing question. Um, I, I had several listeners proposit this to us, uh, notably um, Mr. Baldwin, Jester OC, and Nashville, who all had this to say: How does combat scale at high levels? Um, do you have any advice for scaling? combat encounters for characters with a lot of experience and but what it comes down to is that some players have noticed that the difficulty upgrades from defensive talents don't seem to scale well with increases in skills and characteristics um you know that for highly experienced characters they can be very hard to hit um as and he, they write basically as it's likely that you guys are quote unquote in the future in terms of development and play testing uh can you reassure people that if you played a character over the lifetime of the core books i mean so what, two three years that threats can easily scale Oh, absolutely. Threats are very, very easy to scale. 
And I think that people probably already saw uh, a little bit of how that's going to be managed in the core rulebook with how adversaries, nemesis, uh, how these abilities help upgrade an enemy NPC in a very, very easy way. Plus, I mean, the rules are designed to be easy to adjudicate. Whether you're a high-level character or a low-level character, the GM should have uh, the tools and feel comfortable enough that when they're in the middle of an encounter, they can quickly determine, is this encounter too challenging, not challenging enough, or just about right for my group? And that there are tools available in the game, regardless of where along that uh, measurement you lie, that you can either add things very easily to make it more challenging or take things away and scale it back. I mean, you've got destiny points. You've got uh, the ability to throw out some uh, minion groups at them. You've got the ability to uh, just, I don't know, introduce a lot more things, be a little bit more strategic with your application of threats, despairs, advantage, and all of these other resources that the game is giving you and putting at your fingertips to basically add to the narrative or scale the adventures. And if I can, uh, if I can jump in after uh, that as well, um, in a on a specific level, one of the things that um, scales um, scales threats later on is not as much the idea of making the individuals necessarily a whole lot more dangerous, um, but some so sometimes it's adding more individuals bigger minion groups um, with a few more individuals in each one so they can take more hits before going down and they do a little more damage when they make attacks. But also increase, like, so one of the cool things about this game is that the adversary profiles have several different um, defenses, right? They They have the adversary talent, which is great for increasing the difficulty of being hit in the first place, but then they also have soak and they also have wound threshold, um, all of which can be increased to increase the difficulty of um, of an of a nemesis in a combat or any adversary in a combat. Um, and the players sort of have the same thing going on. It's one of the reasons we switched um, toughened in the beta from plus one wound to plus two wounds is so that um, is so that as people are leveling up, their wound threshold is increasing enough so they can take a few more hits or hits from heavier weapons. Um, and we felt that it was more, um, that, um, it was more valuable to be scaling up, um, wound threshold by two instead of one. Whereas some um, grit still stays at scaling up one because strain is a little more limited resource that we wanted to uh, keep there. If, mm. if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really interesting too, because a lot of the threads that I've seen on various forums talk about, uh, the damage output for Edge of the Empire and whether it's too high, too low, is it too dangerous? Will, will PCs ever actually die? Um, and it's interesting because a lot of people have a lot of opinions on, on both sides of that topic. And what I find really interesting is damage gets thrown around a lot, but I hope that there isn't a point where players feel they can start being reckless with their characters and still come out on top. I mean, a lot of combats that you'll see, especially early on, after you take a couple couple uh, blaster bolts, you want to hide behind cover. That's still going to be a good move later on uh, when you're fighting multiple enemies or higher-level characters. It, it should still be strategic, and you're not going to suddenly have this god complex where you feel nigh and vulnerable and be walking around having things shrug off of you. 
Um, so I, hopefully people are going to still be playing smart all the way through their characters' careers. I, that's a, I think that's a really good point uh, Jay just made and ties in with the idea that if you're leveling up, um, if, you, if you're leveling up, if the GMs are leveling up their encounters for players to play against, instead of trying to make their nemesis this, you know, end-all, be-all, every, um, every stat in the book um, is maxed to five um, person, what they should do is they should consider the nemesis from the same perspective of the players in that um, there's still a guy who, if he takes a few shots, he might go down. So he's going to want to fight smart. He's going to want to bring his friends. He's going to want to um, attack people from ambush. Um, yep. He's he's going to uh, want, you know, he's going to, yeah, he's going to want to get the drop on them. He's just going to want to uh, not just show up in the middle of the room and you're like, I am the red dragon now. And now the boss fight begins. <laughs> That's a good point. And it's interesting. I think that there might be this uh, learning curve where the players are really learning early on how to play with their characters, good moves to make and things like that, where the assumption is the GM is a little bit more familiar with the system by that point because they are the ones teaching it to others. And I find over the, the course of a long campaign that the uh, knowledge that the players start to learn because they're making more choices about the customization of their character and making sure that they're acquiring the talents and the skills and the characteristics to really tailor that character to their style of play, uh, sometimes the GM finds that now there's a little bit more of a learning curve for him, taking all that information that he's getting from the players and taking that information and using it so that he can scale encounters that are still going to be challenging, engaging, and really interesting for them. Yeah, I have, you know... I wouldn't exactly call the games I've been running getting more close to what I would consider to be high XP play at this point, but you know, running into that creep and, and yeah, it comes down to, at least for me, it's come down to uh, appropriate GMing. Um, you know, that's really kind of what it takes. Um, and considering the eyeball methodology that's needed to cast threat in this game and, and, uh, um, acceptable counter difficulty to begin with. Um, that seems to fit guys. In, yeah, I think any game that has freeform character creation where you, you could have a 300 XP character who's dropped every bit of his experience into knowledge skills, the scholar tree, and, yeah. you know, anything, basically anything but combat, and a level one bounty hunter gadgeteer, you know, who hasn't spent a single bit of XP except to starting XP might still just be able to mop the floor with them. And any game where you have that disparity, there is always going to be a certain amount of the GM has to, the GM has to, he's, yeah, as you said, he's got to be constantly seeing what his players can handle and trying to challenge them with new, new fights exactly, or challenge them, maybe challenging them outside of combat um, as well. Yeah. I was just going to say that. That's a good point, Sam. Uh, I, I know a lot of people look at this game from a combat balancing standpoint, but Combat is only one part of this game, just like it's only one part of what takes place during all of the movies. Uh, combat is epic and adventurous and action-packed and exciting, but there's also a lot of negotiation and things going down on the sly and political intrigues and all of these other things that go on that are still interesting, important to move the story along, and should provide spotlight time to everybody, regardless of how they've developed their character. Um, so I think it's really easy to get caught up in just a combat-centric focus because the numbers are there and easy to play around with and easy to compare. 
but I think it's really, really interesting and speaks to uh, a great GM being able to grab that and maybe put that combat-heavy guy in a situation where he's less comfortable in a social situation or a political uh, intrigue. And so other characters can come to the fore and kind of help out and have their moment to shine as well. Well, okay, talking about GMs, you know, tailoring things appropriately to their party needs, okay, and keeping their eyes on things. Um, I really think this leads us into our next question, uh, which comes from Darth Gary, and he wanted to know about obligation, which obviously uh, rests a lot on the GM's shoulders. Um, and he writes this. He wrote in and said, uh, for years, I've seen good D&D DMs use obligation style narrative devices without using any mechanics like we have in Edge of the Empire. Um, it's always handled narratively. Like, you know, remember that witch queen you guys murdered four sessions ago? Well, her daughter is sending assassins after you now. Um, you know, the players don't ask for the obligation. They never see any numbers, but it still affects the story. Yep. Was the inclusion of an actual mechanic designed to force this type of narrative play, or, or were there other motivations? Um, do you think the system or, or parts of it would break if a good GM handled all the obligation behind the scenes for the players rather than using the mechanics? And I'm considering handling it on the back end to make the system a little easier for younger players. Um, would it break? Well, I mean, the question already asked if it's done with a good GM. No, a good GM could decide to throw out half of the rules in the core rulebook and still create an engaging, awesome Star Wars experience for his players because he knows what his players are going to want. Um, but, but I'll tell you the development of obligation and I've mentioned it before and, and listeners may have heard me talk about this from time to time, but the obligation mechanic and coming up with obligation as both a system and as a GM resource was one of the real turning points that turned this from being a star Wars role-playing game to edge of the empire. Uh, and I really think that it works so well because it has a very, very tangible player-focused part and GM-focused part. So it's not that I don't think you could decouple them. Obviously you could, and I've played in games where that's happened, and I'm sure others have as well. But one advantage that the mechanical representation of obligation has here can actually be answered in the uh, example that you just brought up, where in Dungeons & Dragons it had been handled by the GM, that the GM would bring up, do you remember the thing that happened four sessions ago, which might be two months ago, three months ago of actual playtime, who knows? The obligation mechanic is created to make it very personal to the players and their characters. And as such, it's easier for the player to keep in mind all of these different events and be able to keep track of them for his character and how it works out. And you'll find that players will bring that up to the GM or to their fellow players to say, oh man, remember that Rodian that we uh, screwed over, that's really going to come back and haunt me when I got to go pay the huts. What are we going to do about this, guys? Where it's not the GM has to track down on some note card that he took notes on a couple sessions ago to bring that up. The players are actively working that into the story themselves. And I think that's really when obligation becomes the most interesting and exciting, when it's a player-driven narrative tool that ends up being the mechanically driven part by the GM. For me, the, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say the only thing I would all that I would add to that is that obligation, as Jay was saying, since it's something the players are tracking, uh, I've noticed that it also tends to it can also tend to drive adventures with um, 
and create new adventures without the GM basically having to do any work because if the obligation reaches above a certain point and the players start getting really nervous about having to pay it off, they may be going to the GM and saying, we have got this plan to lower our obligation. They outlay the plan and the GM's like, perfect, my, uh, my next two sessions are dealt with. Hmm. Oh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And what if they get so close to going over 100 obligation and that fear of not being able to spend experience points crops up but then they're faced with an opportunity where our ship is wrecked. We don't have the credits to repair it, but I know a guy who knows a guy, and he'll fix it for 20 obligation, and we owe him a favor. I mean, these become really, really interesting decisions for the players and their characters to have to face. It, it kind of takes them to task or makes them accountable for some of their actions. They don't just have carte blanche to do whatever they want. They've got, I don't know... Uh, Cart Verde, Cart Rojo. <laughs> They've got a card to do a lot of stuff, but it's going to be covered red with blood or black with ink. It, they're going to have to pay, pay up at some point. They're going to have to pay the piper. They're going to have to be able to, to come up with the goods, follow through on that favor, pay the back, blackmail, whatever it might be. They are going to be taken to task. See, now, and that, that's, that's the thing. You know, one of the, I guess at the beginning of the year, I was running a, a short recurring uh, campaign for some of my playgroup, and you know they're st- still trying to understand the obligation mechanic. And I get it, I get it. It's a resource. And one guy's like, "Man, I really want to buy this awesome weaponry and armor." It's like, but I need like eight thousand credits. And he's like, <laughs> he looks at me, he goes, "Oh, can I get a loan?" And I'm like, "Sure, absolutely." <laughs> uh, which which I never would have said in another system, you know. And he's like, "Really?" I'm like, "Absolutely," you know. And he he made a roll to find a shark, and he made a loan. He's like, "Awesome." I'm like, "Okay." Um, you have just taken on a 20 magnitude or 20 value obligation. <laughs> understand what that means. He's like, okay, whatever. And the very next session it triggered and you know, it, it, it I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and literally two, two of the party at the time were like, you know, whoa, you, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. What? No, don't do that. Oh, screw you guys. I'm doing this. And he, he gets it. Um, it, it, yeah. So, I mean, I encourage the use of it cause it adds that, that freedom, but I mean, yeah, if you're a good GM and you're, you're able to handle it narratively and it's better for your players, especially, I know Darth Gary was, he, you know, he's, he, he GMs for his kids and I know that's why he was asking the question. Um, you know, so well, here's another great point about obligation. Um, well, I, I guess there are a couple, but one of the big keys about obligation is, is players should know how early in the character development process it is. When you want to create a new character for Edge of the Empire, your obligation is front and center. You've got to choose what you owe and to who before you make other key decisions that you might be making earlier in the process in the role-playing games. That should underscore just how important obligation is thematically, if not numerically, to the game. And a great part about that is if you are creating characters at the same time with the other players that are going to be in your game – just the simple nature of character creation does a lot more to create player interaction, character interaction, and plot hooks than any other system that I've played. It, it builds in a reason why your characters are together. It builds in those loyalties or those mistrusts that uh, can become so interesting and integral to a cohesive narrative over the course of a campaign. Man, that goes all the way back to uh, brainstorming on uh, Rogue Trader back in the day. Yep, yep. The Endeavor system. 
-hmm. and uh, even the origin path system that designed for that. So especially the origin path system. Yeah. Sorry, that's a totally non-related <laughs> aside, but uh, well, it's completely related because if you want to pump up my ego about that, talk about it all you want. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, anyway, the, the other part that I wanted to bring up about obligation, what makes it so neat? Um, I got this question the other day about being able to play Edge of the Empire completely GMless, and it's really interesting, and and I think it's completely doable. And one of the reasons I think it would be uh, easy to do is with that obligation mechanic. If you wanted to play Edge of the Empire completely GMless, and you get together with a group of people and you make your characters and you really develop those obligations and those interpersonal connections between the characters, then if you want to play, just roll until one of the characters' obligations is triggered at the beginning of a session. Oh, Bob, you're... Uh, Rodian bounty hunters addiction obligation came up. What does that mean to you and how can we help? How are we going to get involved? So it actually kind of shares that GM burden and you can find that you can spend an entire session playing out a storyline that you prompted yourselves without necessarily a, a game master. Hmm. That would be an experience to be sure. It's pretty cool. And then the Man. final thing I want to talk about obligation um, one of my favorite parts about reading session reports and recaps and people talking about the game, and I don't think it's intentional, it's just a byproduct of this particular mechanic and how it's integrated into the game. When you read a lot of the stories online about people talking about their sessions, when they're explaining the action, go through those and see how many times they're framing it in the context of one of the character's obligations oh man, we were on this planet and we didn't really want to be there, but Bob needed some glitter stim to be able to pay off this junkie. And all of a sudden you hear that this whole slice of the storyline came from somebody's obligation. It's really, really neat for me to read these stories and see them mention it. I didn't expect to be using it as often as I do. And it, <laughs> it, is, it is refreshing. Well, good question, Darth Gary, and we've obviously <laughs> given you a lot of obligation info there. Um, uh, Jay, you are a passionate man about obligation. I uh, am. But now, I think it is time for this. Skill Monkey. Skill checks are one of the most narratively creative elements in FFG's Star Wars system. They represent opportunities for players and GMs to work together to create the kind of stories and adventures that become epic and cinematic. At least, they can be epic and cinematic if you think creatively about the dice results. Let me show you what I mean. We've been flying around this old galaxy for quite a while now. We've pretty much had the run of the joint, and things are going pretty well. I can tell my GM is getting frustrated, though. How? Well, this morning, the crew woke up to discover a bomb on board the ship. Definitely placed there by a GM with a point to prove. After all, it isn't as if we keep watch or have internal security measures to prevent just such a thing, is it? Huh? Is it? No, we do that just for the kicks. Go ahead with your old bomb Go on! Right. So, a bomb. 
we should probably see about stopping it. Naturally, the crew, after pointing out several mishaps in the past that were clearly not my fault in any way whatsoever, elected me to go defuse it. Thanks, guys. No, no, it's, it's completely okay. You just go ahead and eject in the escape pods and wait at a safe distance while I do this. No problem at all, really. Bastards. May the force be with me indeed. <sighs> Diffusing a bomb generally requires tinkering with delicate and sensitive systems. Systems that, if handled improperly, could spell the ultimate form of disaster aboard a ship. Bodies in space. I'm going to be relying on mechanics checks, which, in turn, rely on my intellect. Hey, why are you all trying to back away all of a sudden? A simple success means you had a peek under the hood and decided that by disabling that wire right there, everything will be hunky-dory. No problem, you think, as your GM tells you, by examining the various wires and mechanicals inside for a few moments, you carefully determine that the red wire is the one to cut. Moving cautiously and making sure not to touch any other wire, you snip it, and the timer stops. No doubt he says this through gritted teeth, but hey-ho, success is success. Additional successes can be used to shorten the time it takes to do this, meaning your crew can return that much faster, or perhaps you even have enough success to allow you to learn a thing or two about the bomb while you work on it. All the better to make your own later when the GM least expects it. Failure can be fairly tricky here. It will be tempting for your GM to declare an explosion, the magnitude of which is determined by how much failure you actually got. Resist this urge, GMs. Instead, let failure represent the need to move more carefully or needing to take more time to study the mechanisms involved before making a cut. Maybe you brought the wrong tools and need to go get the proper ones while the timer ticks down. Better hurry. If you get some advantage, good job! The wiring and structure inside the bomb has clued you in on who made it and given you an important lead you'll need later. Maybe you decide that a simpler course of action would be to simply eject the bomb into space and let it blow up harmlessly. Or maybe, with sufficient advantage, you work out that rather than defusing the bomb and rendering it useless, you can turn it off and save it for later. Bravo, you brilliant bomb-busting big boy. Wait, who said threat? Was it you in the back? Shame on you. Don't you know better than to disturb someone defusing a bomb? If you touch that wire over there, the counter is going to speed up. Or maybe it stops, but the bomb remains armed and dangerous. If you really come up with a ton of threat, maybe your tinkering and ham-fisted poking around dislodges the bomb, and it lands on your leg, not only injuring you, but preventing you from running away at best speed when the time comes. Bomb defusing triumph not only renders the bomb harmless, but also lets you backtrack the parts used in its construction to a supplier who just happens to know who bought the parts in the first place. Triumph can tell you how the bomb got aboard, or let you salvage its components for valuable resources and a tidy profit. It might even give you a wonderful opportunity to use it against whoever it was that built it in the first place. Relish the irony. Sadly, despair allows your GM to have his revenge. Boom! Bodies in space. <laughs> uh, less severe GMs might moderate the explosion and give you a chance to survive, albeit with some severe damage to both you and your ship and anyone else foolish enough to trust your skills and remain aboard. 
Despair might have you, or what is left of you and your crew, stranded in the escape pods, far from any hope of rescue and without a working ship. Despair can even make it so that your escape pods are flung in separate directions to come to rest who knows where and how far apart, lost in space and victims of an uncaring and merciless galaxy. Thankfully, I'm pretty handy with a hammer and chisel. I feel confident everything will be just fine. Now, was it the red wire or the green one? Oh, hey, gang. Skill Monkey again. You can now find old installments of Skill Monkey in handy, single-serving sizes at theskillmonkey.blogspot.com for your listening pleasure. Mighty handy for helping your crew understand how to make your adventures more memorable and cinematic. See you next time. Excellent job, Fiddleback. Thank you very much. I love those Skill Monkey segments. Our fans seem to as well. Um, absolutely love it. And I thought this might be the perfect time, now that Skill Monkey is over with, to maybe get to some questions for you guys uh, just a couple of them, around skills. That's with a Z, not an S. Leet skills. Leet skills. Oh, the ones I use to pay the bills? <laughs> the leet skills I use to pay the bills. Uh, first off, uh, Nashable, who's actually in the uh, in Echo Base in our chat room right now watching live. Hi, Nash. Uh, Nashable wants to know, why vigilance and cool? Why not just a single skill? Oh, man, why only a single skill? Why not only have one blaster type? Why not only have one ship type? Why not only have one race? Well, uh, I thought it was really interesting that when we take a look at the movies, and again, I I keep on going back to the movies because I'll tell you, a lot of research, quote, unquote, that, sorry, Trish, I can't watch the kids tonight. I can't do the dishes. I got to do research for this game. Uh, Watch the movies quite a bit, and you'll notice that there are, uh, all of these different triggering events for what you would consider one of the action su- sequences. Um, and I really like the idea personally of having two different ways to be able to react to a situation. One of them when you are prepared and ready and it's all about springing the trap and the other one, which your, your twitch reflexes, how well can I react to a situation I wasn't prepared for? And uh, from a mechanical side, there was actually... Uh, a hope to go away from a God skill or a God stat. And a lot of the listeners out there probably know what that is, is it, the more importance that you bundle on to fewer skills or stats, then the more important those become to the exclusion of others. And by uh, creating this split between two different ways that situations might come up. And I also think that often it's between uh, social and combat or just combat and non-combat. Um, that you'll find that different people specialize in different types of situations. And you don't always find that one person excels at every single situation. Rarely in this game. Well, okay, so go ahead, Sam. I was just going to say the nice thing about Vigilance and Cool also is that since we don't um, since we don't really deal with uh, surprise rounds and all that um, for uh, mm. combat situations. Um, yep. Vigilance and cool is a good way to represent that instead. Yeah. It's another good example of being able to basically fewer dice rolls with more results and more information. Um, and, and I think that that's a really good point, Sam. In fact, 
those sorts of things where we were trying to find a way to either cut out an extra step or streamline things into one step. Um, I think people, hopefully they'll, they'll appreciate how much we pack into each die roll, uh, that there's a lot of information in there. And in general, we don't really ask the players to make a die roll unless it's meaningful. And what I like about that is a lot of times in the, the sessions that I run, people are leaning forward, even if it's not their character, even if it's not their die roll, they want to see what's going on. And they're really excited to see the information that's going to get pulled out of the dice after the check. Everyone wants to see a triumph or a despair come up. Hell yep. yeah, yep. they do. <laughs> Actually, well, bloodthirsty, uh, my bloodthirsty as they are, my players always want to see when a despair comes up, even if it's for one of their own. Oh yeah, everyone wants to know what you're going to do with it. It's it's brilliant. Well, okay, okay, so okay, I, I see the, the the need for vigilance and cool as separate skills. It makes sense to me. But in a related question, and uh, so several posters have actually put up questions about this. Um, this particular one comes from Alien270, who says, what is the difference between cool and discipline? Um, in terms of their, their descriptions, they seem extremely the same. Um, and, and to a lesser extent, he wanted to know perception and vigilance. I, I get there are specific examples called out in the skills chapter, you know, um, you know, like cool for initiative, discipline for fear checks, but I'm not really getting why the skills were separated like that. What was the thought process that went into splitting those two skills up? Um, I feel like understanding that might help me adjudicate which skill to use on the fly and would certainly make it easier to remember which social skills are opposed by discipline and which by cool. Well, um, for my opinion, this might be somewhere that Sam and I have differing opinions because, you know, there's so much that goes into creating and calling a skill list. I remember at one point, uh, there were probably 12 to 15 more skills than what you see now because you want to account for everything, but eventually you can't. For me personally, in simplest terms, when I run, I generally reserve vigilance and cool almost exclusively for those initiative encounters uh, under the assumption that I'm creating encounters that are going to be using those two fairly frequently, uh, but then reserving perception and discipline uh, for I guess, the, the crossover that a lot of people see in those skills. But another thing that I'd just like people to keep in mind going forward, uh, understand that no decisions were made lightly. And sometimes a decision that may seem confusing now may make more sense in the future. You've got to understand, we were designing three completely independent yet compatible role-playing games at the same time the decisions that we were going to make with the dice, with the mechanics, with how things were going to work, we needed to make sure that these were going to work across all three product lines. Uh, and that's really all I can say to that is, is I think people will see the light will go on. They'll go, Oh, I get it. Um, it may just not be apparent immediately. No. Um, I think, uh, I think one other thing that personally I see in the difference between um, cool and discipline is also I do see cool as more of cool is more of an external um, composure, whereas discipline's much more internal and mental composure. So, which is why you use cool for, um, which is why you use cool for initiative checks because you have to act cool, basically, you know, without uh, without that sounding too corny. You use cool acting. for sabak, and that was the other one. You use cool for gambling. Um, well, unless you're cheating, in that case, you use <laughs> anything else. But um, where in a game where bluffing is incredibly important, that's where cool comes in. 
Um, and for the same reason, discipline ties into all the Jedi powers because they're a, a proper um, a proper Force user, user doesn't even care what is showing on his face necessarily at the point. He's all about what's going on inside his head and the inner focus that lets him use his powers. My f- the the in chat right now, um, uh, Xavier Starsider uh, put it in perspective for me. He just said, "Look, a stormtrooper has discipline. Han Solo has cool." <laughs> that works pretty well, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good, right there. And 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 that like I mean to to Alien Two Seventy's question, dude, that should help you understand what the difference is between those two skills. <laughs> And that actually works really well with the movies because uh, mm-hmm. Han is um, incredibly cool as he's chasing that uh, stormtrooper down the hallway right until he sees five more and then he's off in the other direction. Not that discipline. <laughs> Failed to spear check there. <laughs> oh, there's like 30 of you. Uh, never mind. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Iloin came back with another very serious question. He wanted to know how you guys made a book composed of such sheer awesome. Whew, that wasn't really, you know, easy to do. Um, the the cortosis we've covered, uh, it's it's pretty heavy, and people would not believe how expensive it is to to wookie proof a book. Uh, it took a lot of work. Not not to mention shipping them all the way from uh, Coruscant. <laughs> the tariffs. No, um, I, I hope people can better appreciate, especially those that participated in the beta, how seriously we took their feedback. Um, This has been said, I think Steve said this the last time he was on the show. Um, People may like the game, they may not like the game, but hopefully everyone goes away appreciating the fact that we did our best to create the best possible Star Wars role-playing experience we could possibly make. And, and I think we really did that. And it's a combination of the art and the style. It's the design and the mechanics. It's the absolutely wonderful graphic design that they pulled together. Um, it's the great fluff and background. We had phenomenal artists, phenomenal writers. Um, just everybody put out their A game. It, it sounds cliche, but uh, as a lot of people have mentioned about this product, it's one of the most beautiful role-playing products they've ever seen. Uh, and I agree. Um, I think Jay basically put it better than uh, I ever could. Well, yeah, but no. <laughs> See, you guys gave that question a lot more thought and answering than I anticipated. You <laughs> <laughs> Well, look what happened with the pie question. Well, yeah, well, good point. People out there might not realize just how much uh, Sam was involved with, with the beta and taking all of that feedback and going through it and making a lot of tough decisions uh, that was going to shape the future of the product. So I, I really credit Sam with, I, I feel like I had the easy part. I, I came up with the design early on and I had the experience from designing a similar dice pool with Warhammer fantasy role play. Um, and then Sam really took a lot of that information and integrated it with the feedback from the beta testers helped coordinate so much with the, the writing along with uh, Tim Flanders and Andy Fisher, just a phenomenal crew. And at that point, they really took that product and, you know, just just went to town on it. When I would check in or touch base and they'd come back and give me kind of a progress update on where it was, I was, I was constantly, like, blown away with, with how far it had come and with where we were headed with the product. Yeah, but he was never not in the loop. Don't uh, 
<laughs> Jay always, um, Jay was always around to have, um, like, and why can't you do this great idea? Um, and take things in suddenly a whole nother, um, direction. And There's nothing not wrong with that. <laughs> Jay, Jay did that? No, not Jay. It's my baby. <laughs> Jay, Jay's basically like a vending machine for ideas. You uh, you get him like you buy him dinner or something, and um, something new and brilliant comes out. <laughs> oh, thought it was going to be that you stick quarters in my ear and you know, where's the idea pop out? <laughs> no, you got to jiggle it. That one's still stuck inside. <laughs> oh, no comment. No comment. All right, so we well, can cut that in post, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, Jay. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, Jay, I know, I know, we have you on limited time tonight, so I'd like to press forward if we could um, to uh, while well, I have you both at, at while I have you both at my disposal um, uh, to talk about some game mastering questions we had come in because um, I'd really like to get both of your feedback on this. I know you're you're both lauded GMs. Um, Very different GMs too, and exactly. So, um, from behind the GM screen, uh, Zertz hit us up with a question. He says, "Can can you describe how the designers see fear fitting into this game? You know, fear isn't something you see super often in Star Wars material. Um, I'll disagree with that, but I'll, um, as the heroes are generally at least slightly larger than life, um, I know it's up to me as the GM to make some of these decisions." Um, but as a mechanical effect, I, I'd be very interested in hearing how it was intended to fit into the overall system, you know, when it should be used, stuff like that. Sam, do you want to handle that one? Because I think you worked with uh, uh, Sterling on those rules, right? Yeah, actually. No, absolutely. Um, so I think fear fear is not a... Um, fear is not necessarily a requirement for all Star Wars games, but I think it's um, I think it's something that's important to exist, right? Because I mean, especially in Empire Strikes Back and in Return of the Jedi, you definitely get situations where you can see fear playing a role. Um, I mean, the the single best example that I can think of is Luke in the cave on Dagobah. Um, yep. Yep, he's going in there, and um, his his fear is what undoes him. Basically, he panics, he attacks the apparition, and um, and and he fails in the end because of it. So, I don't think fear is necessarily something that fits into every game you play, but I think it is definitely an important enough part of Star Wars that um, we um, that we wanted something to be in there. And I mean. Stir, that's why uh yeah that's so, so sorry no that's that's definitely why we put um put it in there in the first place um so i see i definitely see fear as a as a tool the gm has that he doesn't have to bust out all the time but every once in a while especially when something big and awful shows up like you know the rancor steps out of the say, uh, rancor yeah exactly or um or you're chasing three stormtroopers down a hallway, screaming, and then you run into a small platoon. Bam! Exactly, and uh, or you know you start hearing that ominous, um, heavy respirator breathing. Um, but any you know any of those times, that's a, a fear check is a good way to really drive home the fact that 
even for if the players don't find it scary in the sort of the meta place that they occupy, the characters might get um, get freaked out. For me, fear is one of those things that it's more powerful the less it's used. Uh, I think in a lot of the run-of-the-mill situations, which might be tense or anxiety-riddled, well, that's why you've got strain. And a lot of those effects can be represented by uh, suffering strain damage uh, or kind of like obligation where you lower the strain threshold. But for those situations where you really want to be able to drive it in, uh, those fear mechanics can help add that extra level of, oh, it's about to get real up in here. Um, but another thing is keep in mind that fear is one of the steps to the dark side. And while this book does cover the force and force exile uh, to some degree, it is not the be-all, end-all book in what eventually will be all about <clears throat> the force and things like Destiny. I think uh, I think uh, Jay puts it. I think Jay puts it really well there, without uh, without saying anything else. Duly noted. Okay, so fear it makes sense. Um, I mean, when I, I uh, the first published module I wrote that we put up on our site. Uh, it was a three, uh, you know, three session, three modules rolled into one adventure. Um, I used fear once, and it <laughs> it, it, it worked. Uh, you know, they're they're having to en- entreat audience with a hut, a nasty one. Um, mm. You know, they make fear checks, and it it you know it will influence how successful they are, and or, or it will obviously have impacts on their interactions with him during that scene, depending on how they were able to negotiate the fact that it's there's a giant hut crime lord, in and you're in his lair, surrounded by his private army. You know, that, that that general fear. Absolutely. Actually, and just one other really quick thing about it. Um, one of the other reasons um, that it exists in Edge of the Empire now, it, and this isn't something we've done as much on the done as much with in the core book, but fear. Um, one of the things that people are always afraid of is the unknown, and one of the themes in Edge of the Empire that we. Um, definitely want to be exploring is exploring the unknown you know there's a lot of uh there's a lot of things out in uh st- in the uh, star wars galaxy that as old as it is people haven't seen before and one of the themes is exploration so who knows what they could find out there mm. wink wink nudge nudge yeah <laughs> dum 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 only there were like some upcoming adventures or supplements that might explore some of these really interesting, yeah, I don't know, fringe or edge concepts. Wouldn't that be awesome, Sam? Yeah, or rim com- um, concepts. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we did talk about it and, and obviously, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, next question is a biggie that was echoed by several listeners. Um, how do you and, – and we sort of talked about it earlier when talking about core mechanics – how do you go about assigning difficulty to adventure challenges in a levelless game? Um, I've not seen anything that shows how a GM would determine the appropriate, or for lack of a better term, challenge level for an encounter. How does a GM know what's challenging versus what's too easy versus a TPK? Practice. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it is yeah? easier to start out on the low end, be conservative with your estimations, and then scale up from there. Um, I think this is part of the comfort level that we were talking about before. Hopefully the rules are intuitive enough once the learning curve, you know, you've adjusted to that, that the tools are intuitive enough that you can gauge fairly easily 
whether or not the encounter that you are presenting to that party is challenging. Now, it doesn't mean that every encounter needs to be challenging either. Maybe you've got an incredibly hard challenge that is sandwiched in between two fairly easy ones that are there to set the tone and set the pace. But this is a big obstacle for a lot of people, but it's also a huge design challenge. Uh, I felt it was very, very important not to have levels. So if you're not using levels, then what is the metric for the capability of a character? And, and just using experience points by itself isn't always the answer because 300 experience in a combat-focused character who is only spending that money within his one specialization can be very, very different from 300 experience points spent by a character who has picked up a number of specializations so that he can have a, a broad base of abilities to draw on. So um, I, I think that one of the stumbling blocks can be for people who come from a background where uh, mathematical certainty and building blocks of encounters are all based on combat effectiveness or survivability. Uh, but I, I think a good place to start is to start with NPCs that have comparable abilities to the characters and then go up or down from there. And, and I'll share with the group out there right now, perhaps my number one GMing tip. Uh, I do this all the time at conventions. I did this at the Star Wars experience the entire weekend. Uh, I think it works great with the pre-gens from the beginner game, especially. Whenever you're faced with an encounter and you're not sure what to go with, or maybe this was a little off the rails and not the direction that you were uh, anticipating, you've got all the information you need already out at the table. Pick one of the player characters and use their stats for the NPC. Whichever one is most applicable. Uh, and I think the beginner game, it's a great example. You've got six pretty uh, diverse characters, if you include the two free ones that are available for download from the FFG site. And I'll just look around and look at one of those characters and go, oh, okay, well, the the uh, guy with the range is going to kind of be like Oscar, the, the bounty hunter. Uh, but maybe the person with the technical skills is going to be a little bit more like 4-1 Vex, the protocol droid and use those as the baseline and then just adjust up or down as needed. I, I think it works uh, pretty well, to be honest. Um, just a, just a few, um, I was gonna say a couple extra things also play going with Jay's, uh, comment to start out conservatively. Um, I think it's a, I think, it's not a bad idea to remember that minions, even though they're designed to work in a group, they don't have to work in a group. You can put a minion on his own. He's just not going to be incredibly good. But if you're trying to feel out how your uh, um, feel feel out how good your characters are at fighting something, then um, throwing them against a couple of minions who operate independently is a good way to see their um, see their abilities. Um, likewise, in non-combat situations, a good guideline, I think, is, you know, start with average and easy checks and don't, uh, don't do a checks difficulty that's bigger than the, um, highest, um, skill or characteristic level in the player who's making it. So, 
you know, if the guy's got a um, skill of three and a characteristic of two, don't give him a check that's harder than hard. Um, so three difficulty dice. And, and another thing that I kind of like to do is um, try to set them up for success with complication mm-hmm. or just failing with silver linings. I, mm-hmm. I like it if, I, I don't know, for me, I feel like as a GM, I'm really, really close to the proper balance when they're right at the verge. They're right on that line between success and failure. But if they do fail, there's that silver lining. Or if they do succeed, there's that complication. And if I can get right around that, for me, that's the sweet spot for the challenges that they're facing. Really, uh, really easy checks, um, like easy or average checks when they have a high skill level, but that have, uh, you've used a destiny point to upgrade the uh, difficulty once and add that one challenge die in, feel um, feel more intense for the players than they really have any um, warrant to be because the chances of success are pretty high, but there's also the chance that the spare is going to come up and just mess everything up. And suddenly you can make even an easy check be like, Oh, I don't know. What if something goes wrong here? Yeah. Yeah. We, we had, a, we had a very similar question to this that we answered for a listener. Um, I think a couple episodes ago back when we had uh cat Ostrander on. Um, and yeah, I, that's my experience as well, guys start small, and see what your group can handle. And as you point out also, Jay, the way it's the, you know, two, two characters of 300 XP are not the same character. And also keep in mind that th- this question I feel has the spirit of combat encounter, but not every encounter is a combat encounter. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as, as we've talked about when we had you on the show once, Jay, with, with the possibility of doing social combat, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that ba- gadgeteer bounty hunter is going to be kind of potentially hopeless or hapless in such a scenario and get beaten down pretty quickly. Whereas the academic, uh, may, you know, be able to handle whatever comes. So you got to take it in stride. Well, I guess one other, um, I guess bit of advice for people trying to find that balance for them. Uh, and again, to reinforce the idea of going conservative, if you are the GM, put yourself in the player's shoes. And as you learn and as you, understand what the proper balance is would you want to succeed more often on your way to figuring out what that is or fail more often on your way to figuring out what it is so you know what toss them a couple softballs every once in a while a couple alley-oops it'll get them comfortable more familiar with it start narrating the outcomes for it and then slowly but surely tighten the screws and as a side note to that, don't be afraid to toss them a few softballs later on in their uh, campaigns, too, just to remind them how far they've come. You know, oh, yeah. hey, yeah, remember when you guys uh, fought those two street toughs and it was so hard? Here's those same two street toughs again. Turns out it's not such a big deal now. Or interacting with that, uh, with that um, angry librarian in, what, like, the Imperial Library or whatever. Yep. So one final GM question that I'd like to get to, um, Jay, before you have to take your leave of us. Um, right. Nashville uh, had another one. He wanted to know, and I thought this was pretty pertinent, he wanted to know about XP awarding. Um, in the core book, uh, XP rewards are recommended in the 10 to 20 XP range per session. 
Um, he wants to know, could the guys provide clarity as to what time frame they had in mind with those numbers? For example, if a group played on average every two weeks for the next three to four years, would 10 to 20 still be okay? Or should that be tweaked up or down uh, to keep a good curve for future supplements, core books? You know, and, and also time for session. When you say session, how, how many... How many interactions are we talking about? You know, are we talking about hours of play? Are we talking about uh, milestones through the module or through through the through the the adventure? What are, what are we talking about there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, th- this is interesting too because the rate of XP accrual is something that actually changed quite a few times uh, over the course of the development of the game. Not only because of how XP was being treated, but also the costs associated with the various upgrades. Um, there are a couple different rules of thumb that you could use. What I started to use uh, initially was assume five XP per hour of actual gameplay. Not per hour of everybody sitting around the table, but per hour of productive game, narrative, story, moving it along. So usually what that means for a lot of the groups that I play with, is a four-hour session is about 75% on task and 25% BS and shooting the breeze. <laughs> so for a four-hour session like that, where 75% of it is moving narrative long, I, I start out by looking at about 15 experience points and then maybe go up a little bit more from that. Uh, so it, it varies, but the unit of play that I am most comfortable with and the one that I use most often is a four-hour group time together. That's usually what our groups end up doing. Sometimes we've got those long Saturday sessions where we might get six, eight hours in, but the four hours is a good measuring block. And for me, like I said, I also have to say that I prefer a slower ramp up of experience because I want to make sure that the players feel comfortable with the investments that they're making. It's almost like uh, if you drop a million dollars in front of somebody well, how are they going to know how to spend it? They're going to be going after everything and everything looks flashy. And then down the road, they might regret some of the decisions that they made. But if you're a little bit stingier with it at the beginning, then those early choices, which are only in the 5 or 10 XP range, become just as difficult and challenging as later on when you're dropping more experience, but then they have to pay 15, 20, 25 uh, for a single talent or upgrade. Hey, uh, a good way to um, handle that as well might be um, if you want the game to stretch out over a long period of time, like the multiple years, you keep it around 10 experience or even less maybe, although um, you might get some really frustrated players at that point. But then don't be afraid to award more XP when motivations come up and people play to their motivations. And that'll encourage uh, good role-playing and have a um, ta- you know, a tangible bet, um, like tangible bennies for doing so. Um, plus, just gives people a way to get a little more XP to buy that um, when they finally reach the uh, top of their talent tree, um, their specialization tree, and they want to buy that final. Uh, they want to buy dedication. Finally, they may they could do it in maybe two sessions as opposed to uh, three or four. Hmm. Good advice, guys. Good advice. It's, I, it's awesome because I kind of feel like, hey, Sam, we know a lot about this stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it, every once in a while, it's just like, wait, wow, 
Like, we're kind of experts on this. And I, I do find this awesome that Nash is actually in chat right now, and he's like, wow, thanks, guys. That actually really helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad it could. Absolutely. Oh, excellent. How do these guys not know this already? Yeah, God. I mean, haven't they been working with this for two years? Like that? Oh, wait, no. Oh, yeah. And now you understand why we wanted you guys on. It, it's hard to express to somebody how cool it is to be able to talk about this product and share enthusiasm for this. I mean, Sam, you've been working on this for more than a year and a half. Um, I think I had it for about six or eight months before it came to this, you. I can't remember exactly, but this project's been in development for two years. Um, yeah. cause I remember when, um, Christian first tapped you to start developing it. Um, and then, you're right about um it was about five months later when we were in your basement for the first time and then a couple months after that um was when i really got my hands on it to start the uh start the production-y development-y stuff well it's pretty cool and you know when sam says over my basement uh to be able to bribe everybody to come out because i i live further from the office than anybody else did um if they were willing to drive out there, I'd cook for them. That's why he knows that I'm, I am a great chef. But anyway, uh, those initial sessions, Sam, were what you, me, Tim Flanders, and Andy Fisher. That's uh, right. Like the four of us are really the core of this, and I GM the first ones. But what else is interesting is um, some of the first scenarios that we ran uh, left a bit of an impression. Didn't those end up making their way in, <laughs> so, so to speak? Um Without giving anything away, the uh, GM kit adventure borrows liberally from some of Jay's ideas for that first session. <laughs> Meaning that when I saw the uh, GM adventure and I was asked to kind of proof it and read over it, I'm like, man, Sam, is it just me or does this sound really, 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 <laughs> really, really familiar? <laughs> and I think I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jay. <laughs> God, that's great. Well, Jay, I know you've got a jet, man, um, yep. uh, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to come on, um, answer these questions uh, for all, from all of us, all of us, meaning the fans of this system. Uh, really do appreciate it, dude. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, and uh, fans out there, thank you for your support. This is why, uh, I, I think I speak for Sam, too, this is why we do what we do. We love uh, this game so much. We're so passionate for it, and the fans are, too, and that is that, that's one of the best uh, feelings we can get. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. All right. Then uh, with that, I will take my bow and uh, leave it all in the capable hands of Sam. If you guys are going to Gen Con, take a look for me. I'm going to be running some of the official FFG Edge of the Empire sessions. And sounds like maybe just some on the fly here and there. Who knows? We might, we might just, we might just have to wrangle you for some of that. I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> All right, catch everybody See later. Thanks. See you, Roman. Thanks, Jay. All right, Mister Stewart. All right. Um. Well, now it's just you and me. Wait, do we fight to the death now? Maybe we can if you want. Um, <laughs> uh, we really would. But what I would much rather do, um, if it's okay with you, um, is this. Absolutely. Let me take that back, huh? Let me find out what you need. Oh! <laughs> 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 <laughs>
This is a black market. <laughs> what do you know? Uh, well, it is now time for Watto's Black Market, which is a, a bit different tonight. So we're welcoming you to Watto's Black Market, listeners, where the skeezy scoundrels of the Outer Rim Territories can procure the weapons and gear to make a living on the edge of that bar empire just a little more tolerable. And in light of our show focus tonight, Sam, and the fact uh, that we have you with us, uh, Watto has passed along several questions about some odds and ends that have been cluttering up his junk shop. You feel up to the task? Absolutely. All right, <clears throat> so this comes from Watto, and I'll try to do this as I can. <clears throat> Hankook has an explosive question. Um, I, I can't keep that up. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> you're you're going to go horse. I'm going to go, yeah. Um, uh, Hankook has an explosive question. Uh, uh, he wants to know, do missile tubes come preloaded with six ammo? Uh, and how much do missiles actually cost if we want more? Well, for the answer to the first half of the question is yes. All all the weapons come preloaded with uh, whatever ammo is listed in their clip. Um, now, as far as the uh, reloads go, it, I, I will admit that was actually a little bit of an oversight on our part. Um, however, I think a good guideline, if, uh, if I was going to charge my players for some extra missile, um, missile ammo would be at least twice the cost of your average frag grenade. So we're looking at 100 to 200 credits. You certainly don't want it to cost as much as a concussion missile or mm-hmm. a uh, proton torpedo. So okay. you want to keep it below 500 to the 700 range. Yeah, and mea culpa on that one, definitely. <laughs> well, but uh, yeah, I'd say, I'd say 100 to 200 credits per missile. They should all be highly illegal because you're buying a Stinger missile on the black market, and uh, I hear that I hear most governments aren't particular fans of that. So you know, not typically, no, you no. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, next coming in, uh, Rikoshi had a question about cybernetic enhancements. Wants to know if a droid with cybernetic enhancements is hit with ion weaponry, did the cybernetics stop working? as described on page 173, or do they simply suffer the normal droid effects of such attacks? Um, well, so rules is written. Yeah, the, the cybernetics would stop working, and um, as well as the other effects that the ion weapon would have. Mm. However, sorry? Oh, I said, mm-hmm. Yeah. How, however, the GM doesn't have to worry about that so much, because any any weapon with the ion quality, especially star, um, planetary scale weapon, is going to uh, drop the uh, droid Ryan on his ass um, first thing. So <laughs> it's not going to matter if his cybernetics are working or not because he's going to be so far below um, above his strain threshold that uh, there's pretty much nothing he can do. So you can have the cybernetics stop working or you can just have the uh, droid uh, max out on strain and uh, keel over. Um, and I think either way definitely works. It depends on uh, how uh, how much the GM wants to track it, probably. Cool. Okay. Um, so Cyril came to us with a question that actually is reminiscent of something that I had to adjudicate sort of crazy in my games once uh, about two months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to know about jetpacks. He says, how exactly are they supposed to function? Um, the core rules state that a jetpack effectively turns the character into a Silhouette 1 Speed 2 Handling 0 vehicle that uses the pilot planetary skill, which makes sense. And is rather kiss, I would say. You know, keep, keep it simple, stupid. Um, yes. Do characters using a jetpack also operate at the planetary scale as far as range bands are concerned? 
Right, right. No, it's a it's a good question. It's a very good question. And so the answer is it really it's really going to depend on the situation. I mean, the trade-off with uh simplifying the jetpack down that much is in in like combat situations where it's just people, it's going to op- you're still going to operate on a personal scale um situation and you're still operating on personal scale. But if you're flying around on your jetpack trying to uh, catch up with a speeder bike or something, then it's going to operate on planetary scale. And speed is obviously designed to operate on planetary scale. Right. So, like, I would, yeah, I would say um, if you're trying, if you're talking about how uh, quickly you could close the close the range on uh, personal scale, uh, to be fair, you could probably close the range pretty fast. You're you're flying with a jetpack, so. Uh, you could get from extreme range, um, personal scale to uh, short range uh, in um, possibly one maneuver if you really um, if you wanted to, and if the GM thinks that it makes uh, sense for that to work. Um, but uh, once you uh, drop back out to planetary scale, if you're chasing after, uh, like I said, if you're chasing after a speeder bike or trying to uh, latch onto the side of a, a freighter as it's taking off into the atmosphere then everything works in planetary scale and it's relatively simple. Mm-hmm. So it takes a little bit of GM adjudication, basically. Yeah, b- b- basically. Um, Is there any yeah. pilot check required to use any jetpack maneuvers or use it su- successfully? Um, not if all he's doing, if the, not if all the player's doing is just um, moving from point A to point B necessarily. Um, as far as piloting check goes, it still sort of follows all the uh, rules for piloting vehicles in that um, if, you're just, uh, if you're just moving and there's no real consequences for failing, then there's no need for a piloting check. Um, I'd say that you'd want to make a piloting check if you were flying through anywhere with terrain. Right. Which uh, gets called out in the vehicles chapter. Um, could you the, gain? Uh, could you gain the advantage? <laughs> uh, you can't. You're not fast enough. Oh, that's true. Okay. I'm just gonna. Yeah. See, I can just shut that down with rules right Boom. there. Bam. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> rules to the face. Yep. <laughs> but um. But a but a good example of the jetpack was definitely in um, Shadows of Black Sun. Mm-hmm. The well. Oh, shoot. Um, I'm not sure. I, I should probably not spoil the uh, ending to Shadows of the Black Sun, should I? Maybe not everyone's played it. Hey, we've had, we've had, our, uh, we've had our, our episode about it. I, we'll, we'll do this. Spoiler imminent. Mute podcast for next 10 seconds. Okay, go. All right. So the, the nemesis at the very end, the main bad guy, has got a jetpack, and he's flying, around a, uh, he's flying around a factory full of giant pits of lava and electrical circuit breakers and everything and there he is making check piloting checks and i would say that's the perfect time for him to make it there's also the chance that the jetpack explodes which is another good reason to be making piloting checks (laughs) because failure matters there if he uh, slips up on his piloting check he's right into a uh, giant vat of molten critium Ooh. okay yeah which would be bad (laughs) well duly noted yeah Okay, several listeners. Um, we we got we got quite a few questions about equipment, by the way. Oh, um, that's totally cool. Um, several listeners, including John D. and Away Put Your Weapon, uh, wanted to know uh, 
why does the only and I, I think I probably know the answer to this one, but I'll ask it anyway. Why does the only attachment for bludgeoning weapons, which is the weighted head, require two hard points when none of the three weapons that are bludgeoning in the book have any hard points, and there's no means to increase the hard points on any of these weapons by more than one? No, that's a that is a uh, that's a totally fair question, and um, this this goes back into some of the things we did in the book. We did. Um, we did with forward compatibility in mind uh and a big one is just because just because the uh, weapon um the attachment may not work with any of the weapons we have right now that's definitely not going to be the case later on ding ding um, ding <laughs> or uh, without any more with with unfortunately yeah I, I can't talk too much about like stuff we have coming down the pipe that we haven't announced or anything yeah of course not of course not but you know, future but, future considerations. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I and I think yeah, that that about sums it up. Um, we definitely wanted to get some melee weapon attachments in after uh, the uh, people in the beta pointed out, and rightly so, that uh, we didn't have any um, weapon melee weapon attachments. It, everything was guns. Right. So, and you added some so, good ones, by the way. Yeah, thanks. And but yeah, so some of them are going to be more useful later on when some other people when people uh stuff stuff and stuff. <laughs> stuff stuff and stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay, so talking about mods. Infinity Doctor posts up a question. He says, I got a question regarding the increasing difficulty of adding new mods. I'm using the optional impossible tasks rule from page 18 of the new core rulebook. So this may be where my confusion is hitting. Said said confusion comes from the increases the difficulty of the mechanics check by one rule. If you read that as adds a purple dice, you're fine. Uh, the pool is just six dice for that last mod. If you read it as increases the difficulty level, however, you're into impossible task territory, like hard, daunting, formidable, impossible, which is correct. I think you could honestly do either, if um, depending on how the GM wants to do. I mean, obviously, the game, the way the game's designed, even though we've called out each, um, we've defined each difficulty with a different um, name and everything, there's no reason you can't just add more difficulty dice if you want to, although your chances of success get really low um, once you have uh, six or seven difficulty dice in there. Or if um, the GM, but if the GM wants to, and especially if he wants to limit the amount of modifications you do, um, he can use the he can use the impossible rules and say, "All right, you've already put um, you've already put this number of mods on here. If you want to put another one on here, that's going to be an impossible task. You know, you, you're gonna have to flip the, you're gonna have to flip a destiny point. You're gonna have to um, up maybe upgrade the check a little bit beyond that." And I'm signing off on this one, and I, you know, maybe I'll put a condition on it. I won't sign off on the next time you want to upgrade this attachment or something. Mm. And I, so I think the one benefit that has is it does encourage players to think a little more about which mods they pursue on their attachments, which means you're going to get a little more um, uniqueness amongst people's different weapons. And that is sort of the whole point of mods and attachments is to uh, make weapons unique without having a whole lot of different weapons. Right. I mean, well, and, and to a small extent, that's a key part of, you know, Star Wars. You know, you've got Han's got his blaster, you know. Mm -hmm. You got Boba exactly. Fett with all his specific gear. 
Jeez, yeah, Boba Fett must mod the crap out of all his weapons. Yes, he must. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not his jetpack, though, because that thing doesn't seem to... The, the Fett, we, we talked about this before in the show, like, the Fett men have the worst luck with jetpacks <laughs> that I've ever seen. There's not a scene where they're used where they don't get destroyed. Um, oh, they, they totally do. <laughs> <laughs> so, Despair! Ha! Um... <laughs> But jeez, he only needed one mod on his jetpack, and that was to put the button like on his gauntlet or something instead of right on the back of it. You, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last equipment question we've got. Um, Chuck Hurstus, uh, D20 Radio's own, in the, the most famous man to ever be on the Order 66 podcast, Chuck Hurstus, um, and Nashable, again, uh, both wrote in to ask about item creation. Uh, the inventor <laughs> talent. Uh, the inventor talent specifically mentions a benefit for item construction, but there doesn't seem to be any item construction rules codified in the book. Are we missing something? There's nothing in the technician session section, nothing we can see in the detailed in the talent description for inventor, nothing in the gear and equipment chapter. Um, feeling a little at a loss for the creation side of things. Um, and I just wanted to reassure him, you're not missing anything. There are no item invention rules right now. Gotcha. Right now. Um, no, this was de- this is definitely another case similar to the uh, Wait, similar weighted to the head. bludgeoning head, the weighted yeah. head, yeah. Um, where um, we wanted we wanted to make the talent inclusive rather than exclusive, basically, so that in the future it leaves us more room to do other things without telling without going into any de- any more uh, details on that. Enough said. <laughs> all right well i think it is time uh for a small break uh we have um as we are wont to do some fragments from the rim and transmissions from the rim uh which of course uh, some of our more popular segments and we're going to move into those right now back to back and we will see you guys in about eight minutes The farther you get from the core worlds, the more mysteries there are in the galaxy. Secrets that can mean the difference between success or failure, triumph or despair, life or death. Take a seat. My friend here will reveal one of these secrets. One of these fragments from the rim. In all the known galaxy, or at least the portion controlled by the Empire, there's one place no one wants to go. Its infamy spans the galaxy, as does the infamy of its major and only real export. If there's one word no criminal wants to hear uttered from a magistrate's lips, it's this one. Kessel. If there's a place that could best embody the idea of hell, Kessel is such a location. It's located in the Outer Rim, near Hut Space, in the midst of a truly unique stellar phenomena, surrounded by the Maw Cluster of Black Holes, Navigating to the planet is a nightmarish task usually left to seasoned experts, suicidal thrill-seekers, and desperate smugglers. The planet itself resembles a gigantic asteroid 7,000 kilometers across, barely sustaining an atmosphere, and not even a breathable one. The planet is the only reliable place to find glitter-stim spice, which besides the scientists studying the Maw Cluster is the only reason anyone invested time and money into the planet in the first place. Glitterstim originally was mined by corporations, but once the spice's unique, high, and addictive properties were understood, the Republic stopped mining it and was taken over by the black market. 
Sometime after the Empire took power, they swooped in and took over the whole operation, making the Empire the only source of glitter stim, aside from those scoundrels crazy enough to smuggle small loads out from the planet. Being sentenced to Kessel is a common punishment for captured smugglers, thieves, murderers, crime lords, and infochance found in illegal possession of Imperial spy droids. If you're hale and hearty, or the judge just wants to stick it to you because he doesn't like your face, you may be on the next transport through the Maw. Anyone who the Empire feels they can get several years of hard labor out of is sent to work in the mines, especially if their skill set would be an advantage to the mining process. Being sent to Kessel was not a death sentence overtly, but for many that's exactly how they end their terms there. The thin toxic atmosphere kills a few, fights with other inmates will certainly a common cause of death, but what really tops the mortality rate were accidents in the mines. You see, glitter stim is photoreactive, so it has to be mined from the webs of Kessel energy spiders in complete blackness, or under very dim red lights. The caverns are death traps with sudden drop-offs, cave-ins, and encounters with the life-draining energy spiders a common occurrence. Now, clearly the Empire isn't forcing people to mine glitter stim just to give the prisoners something to do. Some of the product they mine goes into medicinal research, the original reason the spice was gathered in the first place. Other quantities are rumored to be going into some secret black ops programs the Empire is conducting, chemical enhancement programs and super-soldier serums. The rest has got to be going into the black market. There's no way the smugglers who make that famed Kessel Run are the only source for the spice on the black market. The Empire puts up a show stopping smugglers and chasing them through the Maw, but they have to be letting a few ships go. Why does the Empire do this? Could be any number of reasons. Extra income is one, but more likely is that they're keeping the galaxy hooked on glitter stim. Crime lords appear, order is threatened, and the populace relies more and more on the forces of the Empire to restore peace and order. Plus, if someone's off addicted to glitter stim, they're not thinking about the atrocities in the Empire and signing up for the Rebel Alliance. They're too busy trying to get enough money for their next hit. That reminds me, if you're looking for glitter stim, go somewhere else. I know this Todarian on Tatooine who could probably hook you up, but that's a long way to score a sample. Me, the last thing I need is an addiction to spice. You have to stay sharp out here, have your wits and complete faculties around you. So anyway, Kessel, Prison Planet, Imperial Resource, and a smuggler's gold mine. If you have to go there, make sure it's on your own terms, in your own ship. Don't let the Empire be your travel agent. Thanks for stopping by. Pay your tab at the door, and may the imps always be one step behind you. The galaxy is full of disreputable scum, reluctant allies, villains, and sappy do-gooders. Knowing who to trust and who to betray is your best chance of staying alive in the Outer Rim. Mr. Steele can give you information on anyone you need to know more about. Why don't you head to his booth, but be sure to buy him a drink for his time. If you're lucky, he'll let you listen to his latest Transmission from the Rim. Well, hello there. Welcome back to my table. I just got word my droid is on the way, so you're just in time, as usual. Enjoy the rim, I hope. We have a nice place here. Scum and villainy abound, of course but the Empire keeps its distance. You've heard me reveal many things about many different people already, but I know nothing about you. Why don't you tell me something about yourself? What? Afraid I'd sell your secrets to someone else? Well, you're probably right. Oh, well here's my droid. I guess you're off the hook this time. 
This transmission is Type 2 classified. Anybody listening without a Type 2 clearance will be court-martialed. Begin transmission. Agents, I want you to investigate a failed Jedi named Vela's Khan, who we assumed was long dead. However, his name has popped up on more than one occasion as we interrogate Pyrus crews. Too many times to be considered a coincidence. Our research on this individual from the old Jedi archives has yielded the following information. Vela's Khan apparently was a gifted child. He could read people. He could feel their emotions. Sometimes he used this to his advantage. Sometimes he just tried to help. His gifts are how the Jedi found him. They took him in, trained him, and when the time had come, they gave him a master. Bayless Khan was a good student in the art of negotiation, gifted even. In his other studies, however, it appears he passed, but not with high marks. The Jedi who taught him as a youngling just knew he would go far as a political advisor. Then, the Clone Wars hit, and Vela's Khan proved to be a coward. His master was killed early in the fighting. Reports said that Vela's Khan had a chance to save his master, had a chance to save many lives. He, however, froze, refused to act, and people died. Despite Vela's Khan's best efforts to wheel and deal, plead and grovel, and these reports document quite a few of these instances, no other Jedi wanted Vela's Khan as his Padawan in this new militaristic Jedi order. Masterless and still not a Jedi, Vela's Khan was given the choice, join the Jedi Service Corps or leave the order. Vela's Khan left the order. What happened after is unknown. Word is he found a place, found a home in the unknown region. Some say the planet was primitive life, that Velas has used his gifts to rule like he is their god. Others say it's not primitive at all, but actually a large pirate fleet that he rules. Velas is not known for battles, we think. He had very little formal lightsaber training. We believe he uses his expert negotiation skill, bolstered with his influence on the Force, to stay out of them. Velas Tan was an intelligent youth with a great presence and a silver tongue. However, he would be an aging man now, and we have no new data on him. Who knows what he is capable of? End transmission. A Jedi, huh? Sounds like some kind of dictator or something. Probably pretty dangerous. I'd steer clear of that lot if I were you. I don't like people swinging those glowy swords around. Brings all kinds of heat I want nothing to do with. Don't just take my word for it. GM Phil would say the same thing. You come in possession of one of those things, best get rid of it, and in a hurry. Well, I'd definitely be keeping my ears out for this Velos Tan fella, so I know where not to be. You should do the same. Thanks for the drink. I'll see you around. Excellent work, gentlemen. Uh, as always, um, and for those of you uh, fans of transmissions from the rim who are eager, of course, to see the the wonderful NPCs uh, that Mister Steele uh, talks to us about, um, uh, Velos Tan is available now over at the GSA blog. You can head over there and get stats uh, for him to drop him in your game immediately. And Sam, since we've talked about um, you know NPCs, absolutely. Um, 
I'd kind of like to move into some questions that we have around character creation and advancement. Um, sure, let's take the uh, N out of NPC. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we had a good number of inquiries come to us in regards to talents, talent trees, species, other aspects of both, you know, character creation and I guess, you know, nemesis creation as well um, uh, and, and, and advancement. Um, our first question in this vein comes from Zarissa, who asks, um, how how retroactive friendly is Edge of the Empire when it comes to skill cost? And what I mean is, say my doctor, who bought a cross-career rank in range light, buys a second specialization that actually has range light as a career skill. Does she now have five extra XP? Um, I totally understand if it doesn't work like that, that sounds too good to be true. Well, the short answer is it doesn't work like that um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because it is too good to be true. No, um, the reason we wanted to keep the option open to buy any skill out of career or in career is for exactly that situation, right? You just need this one rank in a skill or a couple or a couple ranks in skill just to uh, get by or make up for some shortcoming in the group. But the trade-off, as always, is you have to pay a little extra premium for it. So if you can, if you can get by with restraining your character and being horrible at something for a while, and then picking up a specialization that you'll need that it gives you those skills, career skills, um, you will end up with more XP in the long run. But the trade-off is you spend, you know, like those three or four sessions with. Without that skill, without that skill, you need it, and you had to suffer through it, or you buy the skill right away, and you just have to pay a little extra for it. But yeah, definitely, uh, right. definitely, once it's spent, the XP does stay spent. Okay. Um, Wilhoof wants to know about characteristics. Um, uh, he says, page thirty of the core rulebook reads that during character creation, uh, no characteristic can be increased higher than five. Uh, it also reads, during the course of play, no characteristic can be increased higher than six. Does this mean that it can, no characteristic can be, can be increased by higher than five or six, or that no characteristic can be increased to higher than five or six? So you could get, uh, so humans could get characteristics all the way up to uh, seven by the first uh, interpretation, if I'm reading that, if I'm hearing that right. Well, I think I think he's meaning is is what, what, is, is well, the is the upper limit five or six or four four or five or and five or six later on or is it you know what's yeah the upper yeah yeah absolutely no the upper limit uh, during creation is five period um, the skill can't end up higher than five okay I mean sorry the characteristic, characteristic can't end up higher than five skills can't end up higher than five either but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in play, then, your characteristic can't end up higher than six. So if you max out a uh, skill, I mean a characteristic, wow. If you max out a characteristic in character creation um, at five, you can still de- get dedication once and bring it up to a six if you really want to. Okay. And uh, six, by the way, is um, also starts peaking out at... Um, at ridiculous dice pool levels as well, just yeah, as a yes, uh, side does. note. Yes, it does. So, yeah, it's one of the reasons that the uh, Rancor only has a brawn of six, even though he's obviously a big, strong dude, is because if the uh, um, if the if his brawn was much higher, um, he would never miss ever. Right, right, dude. He has a hard time missing now. 
Oh uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even with the um, even with the silhouette differences and everything like that, he uh, yeah. He he's don't, got he's got a hard time missing that. Yeah, don't don't fight him unless you have a uh, shard of ankle bone that you can stick in his mouth. <laughs> triumph, triumph. Um, <laughs> okay, well, with with another characteristics question, Ilowin comes at us with this. He says, "What do you think of the value of characteristics in Edge of the Empire?" To elaborate. Are they more important than skills or talents? Can you get by with just ones, twos, maybe a three? Or should you go all out and invest all you can into characteristic ratings during character creation? How was the game designed in this regard? Yeah, no, it's a, it is a good question. And um, the game was designed where characteristics were important. We obviously, you know, we definitely wanted to have that situation where if you buy up your skill, it's... Um, you know, that's just as good as buying up that characteristic for that particular skill check you're going to make. But just because characteristics are tied into multiple skills, um, just from like a, the pure maths level of everything, um, having, a, having a characteristic that's high means that you're going to be better at several skills, whereas just buying up a skill means you'll be good at that one skill. Um, and that's also why the only time you can buy those characteristics up is at character creation or right. you know, by getting down to the bottom of those uh, specialization trees. So that being said, personally, I tell people who are making characters for games I'm running or games I'm in, seriously consider buying up, a, buying up your characteristics right away because it's the only time you'll get to do it. That is my advice as well. And, and – uh... I just started a brand new campaign for some of my core group, um, heading down a storyline I've been wanting to do for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a couple people who hadn't played the system before coming in. Um, and it was trying to explain to us, like, you know, you know, oh, man, I want to get this talent and this and buy these. I'm like, you, you, and all the experienced <laughs> players are like, you really might want to throw as much as you possibly can into your characteristics. You really might want to do that. And, you know, just just um, this system is damn near impossible to min-max. Um, but... If if there is any remote min-maxing to it, it is people that spend every drop of their starting XP to buy characteristics and then just get by with the free rank they get in skills for their their career and specialization. So, mm-hmm. and it doesn't uh, it doesn't hurt, right? That um, one session in that first uh, ten or fifteen experience they earn, they can still drop it on getting rank one in a couple different skills. Yup. Yep. Um, no, we honestly we did feel it was important enough that I, if I remember correctly, I think we even bolded that out in one on one page when it talked about buying up characteristics. See, now I'm just flipping through my book. It's uh, sitting right here. Um, no, I guess. Okay, we didn't bolt it out. Sorry. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, I'm telling you lies now. Um, <laughs> but we, but we did, we did call out the fact in improving characteristics that says, remember, this is the only time you're going to be able to increase characteristics. So, gotcha. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it's fairly important, especially since you can't buy skills above rank two at character creation. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Although. 
had a had a um, knew a guy who totally went that route. He he had his skills in two for human. I mean, he has characteristics in two for human normal, and spent all his points on uh, skills and talents for his first session. It was a rocky couple first sessions, but eventually, you know, everything compensated out on the other end when he was able to put some skills into rank three or rank four. So yeah, you can do it. Well, that, but, that that's the thing is you know yeah. you're going to get more used to those first couple sessions. But it is ultimately, a, typically, potentially, a cheaper long-term route mm-hmm. to normalize the dice pool by getting the threes and fours into your skill ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, far be it, far be it from us to uh, um, to tell somebody exactly what they have to do. Right? Just give them valuable advice and uh, shake your head, uh, shake your head when the other players are building their characters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, on to nitpicky questions. Uh, well, absolutely. Um, Rogue Regalt is curious. Mm-hmm. He wants to know, is there a link missing from the slicer tree? Um, needing improved defensive slicing before you can access any of the rank two or three talents seems odd. Um, uh, and in a, in a related question, uh, CC Atkins wanted to know, what was the rationale between the design of some of the talent trees? Some are complete grids, others have very peculiar paths. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and people who played the uh, beta will remember the uh, Slicer Talent Tree used to only have a uh, bar across at Skilled Slicer at the very bottom. Yep. And yep, and then got got a second bar um, from playtester feedback. Not out to uh, all you uh, playtesters who are listening on the uh, on the chat right now. Um, no, I the uh, so talk. I'll talk about uh, the. T- rationale behind the design of talent trees in general first because i think it pretty much explains why the talent the slicer talent tree exists what the way it does and yeah the current edition of the slicer talent tree is correct but so the idea with the talent trees was if we just let a specialization give access to 20 talents right and we just said here's 20 talents um, these five talent, these four talents cost five. These four cost ten, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot less. One, there's a lot less design space to work with in there. Um, instead of creating a talent tree that you have to work your way through, um, by creating the by actually creating the tree, you can do you can do things like you can actually increase the cost of a talent without putting it at a higher lower rank just based on how hard it is to get to. So, um, so, you know, so one, one, uh, person may be able to get dodge, um, at, at, at level two, but he still has to go sideways and get another talent to get it where the other person can drop right down to level t- two to get it. So it, even though the dodge talent costs the same in reality, it costs the second guy a lot more. If, if that makes sense, I may not be explaining it super well. <laughs> No, no, it, it makes sense. But I mean, what you're saying is, yeah. I mean, they're the 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 quote unquote uh, how did, uh, how did he put it? Peculiar paths. They were mm-hmm. designed that way, intentionally. Yes. Well, and so and then the other reason, the other reason um, some of the paths exist the way they do is um, pure them um, purely thematic too. Um, so the mercenary soldier I, um, is one example that I like a lot because it has two very distinctive branches that go down it. And yeah. one of the branches is all about being a commander. It's got the uh, command, it's got field commander, it has second wind, so you can, um, which represents you being able to get a hold of yourself in the heat of battle. It has confidence to avoid 
running off the battlefield in front of your men. And then the other side is all about, um, um, basically all about blaster proficiency with the point blank, the natural marksman, the sniper shot to get, um, shoot at longer distances. Um, and if you go, you could just go down both branches simultaneously, spending a little bit on one, spending a little bit on the other, or you could go all the way down one and branch into the other halfway through or at the very bottom. Um, or you could just go down one side and never touch the other side. And basically each one of those creates a different version of the same character, right? You have the commander, you maybe have like the, um, new green second lieutenant who, um, has never fought in actual combat and then slowly learns how to, um, shoot a bla- which end the uh, blaster bolt comes out of. You have the guy who comes up from the ranks and learns how to be a commander. You have somebody who just is in, you know, is just one or the other. You could take mercenary soldier just for its leadership qualities and tie it in with Politico maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the other big thing we wanted to do with these uh, talent trees is create um, thematic things for them. So the slicer talent tree, the idea behind it is um, you can dabble at being a slicer, right? You can, you can take those one off five, you know, for tier one talents, right? It, exactly. And you can get code breaker, you can get bypass security. And um, if you go down a little bit, you can get de- defensive slicing, but you have to be a natural programmer. You have to be really good at this and invest a lot of points to get to become an amazing slicer to become somebody who you know is the uh is the uh slicer that we all imagine when we watch uh the matrix or something right right not to cross genres too much oh we forgive you um <laughs> yeah um keith points out uh, ghent from the uh, timothy zahn books yep he spent all of his experience in the slicer talent tree yep <laughs> yep, Gent, great, great character. And by yep. the way, Fiddlebacks in chat, he says he's disappointed there's no chef talent tree in the colonist section. He <laughs> he he demands this be addressed in a special supplement. Um, he wants to cook. He has frying pan skills. <laughs> well, um, we'll have to keep that in mind. I mean, c- clearly there's clearly there's a demand for this, so we'll have to respond to demand. Behold my glowing spatula. Yeah. Is that a laser spatula? It cooks the uh, (laughs) eggs as you flip them. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so Donovan Morningfire had a question about Twi'lek's starting wound threshold. Um, uh, The beta had it listed as 10 plus brawn. The first week beta update changed it to 11 plus brawn, but the core book changed it back to 10 plus brawn. Is this an error, which is correct? Yeah. Absolutely, and the uh, core book is correct in that one. Um, They're 10 plus brawn, and the reason is, I mean, basically uh, um, with the uh, beta process, especially when it came to species, species went through a few different changes, and some of those were to um, make species more unique. We wanted to strike a fine line between making them so complicated that they had a dozen different unique rules that you had to track based on your choice of species. But we also wanted people to feel like they were making a meaningful choice when they picked them. And so um, one of the later things that we did with the species was we added some of the special abilities like the Twi'leks are able to resist air conditions better and that sort of thing. And then after the beta was finished, we were still doing testing and 
quite frankly, some of the some of the changes we put into the updates based on things that came up later, we were like, well, we better we better knock that one down. It's a little it's a little too it's a little too much, or just to balance things out. So, yeah, in the end, there were definitely a couple things in the beta that um, we changed in updates, and then we ended up going back later when we were looking at the book one last time. We got several questions in this regard relating to mm-hmm. stuff like this, force talents especially. Um, you know, we obviously don't have time to cover everything we got, as we mentioned. Uh, but I mean, is that that pretty much? I mean, is it safe to say what's in the core book is what's intended? Yes, um, there are. There are. I will admit there are a couple mistakes in the core book, um, and uh, I think a few people have noted uh, something on page two seventy two twenty six that shouldn't be there um, in the uh, scanner in the Starship sensor section. So there are a few mistakes, but in general, pretty much everything is in the core book is the way it should be. All right. And also, sorry about the whole surveillance thing. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to everyone out there about the book, that was definitely a small oversight on our part. We it's, definitely want to fix that when we can. <laughs> it's only four, it's only four hundred and fifty pages. God, I can't believe you guys couldn't catch that. Jerks. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. So. Jedi Jedi Knight Skeev asks about droids. Absolutely. He says, uh, you know, as we're talking about species, he says, I was wondering why only one generic droid stat set rather than one for each degree of droid. Like, you know, for example, first degree, maybe having an improved intellect characteristic, uh, fourth degree, improved brawn, you know, comparative to the other degrees or so on and so forth. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and if you remember in the if you remember in the beta originally, droids were originally going to be um, fourth degree droids. Yeah, it was, it was the only option we have. Yeah. It's one of the things I enjoyed. Is like, oh yeah, here you go. Here's all the different. Yeah, and I was like, oh sweet, I can make R two. Yeah, and and that was pretty much what happened. We realized that the way we had set up the droids was we didn't need to limit them to one type of droid because by dropping all their characteristics down at one but then giving you more experience, you could build any of the uh, droids. So we sort of had that, wait, why are we saying you have to build a um, a specific type of droid here? You could build all the types of droids or any type any type of droid you want to. So if you want to play the R2 unit, you don't have to increase your brawn or agility at all, and that's great. So, yeah, basically it was um, we wanted, by doing it the way we did, we wanted to leave open the most flexibility possible. So That makes sense. And yeah. plus, you know, you got, you got the degrees are there as general manufacturing constraints. They're not, you know, if, if, I, yeah. if I custom build a droid, you know what I mean? No, exactly. Whatever his backstory is. Custom built C-3PO, for example. Yeah, oh, exactly. (laughs) He's strangely going to come out like all the other other protocol droids. Yes, yes. (laughs) Listen, I'm sure his mom was real. I'm sure Anakin's mom was really proud of him being able to uh, rebuild the uh, broken droid and just didn't mention that part. <laughs> honey, he's just like all the other 3PO protocol droids. Honey, he's just like all the other 3PO's. <laughs> oh. Sorry, right. I'm getting off track there. <laughs> You're in good company. Um Okay, we got a meaty question from Christine Chester of Fanboy Comics. Um wants to know how do you represent connections between PCs? It seems valid for a PC's motivation to maybe tie them to another PC. But mm-hmm. and this is the meat of a question. What about obligation? 
Um, I've been wondering about how to represent a life debt, uh, uh, which Wookiee or Trandoshan characters might be prone to. Would Chewie's motivation, for instance, be tied to his relationship to Han, or would it work to represent a life debt as an obligation, even though it's an obligation that can only be removed when either the target of the life debt or the character who swore it died? It's a that's a good question, um, and I'm guessing my answer would. Um... Yeah, my answer may be different than um, like Jay's, for example, but um, I think that some of that is just a lot of that is based on your interpretation. And so the way the way I see that um, obligation and motivation, um, or at least the way I like to portray it, is I see obligation as things the PCs are required to do, and motivations are the things they strive to do. So, you know, motivations are what they want to do. They want to be a better person. They want to accomplish this. And obligations are the things they're stuck doing um, because of the situation in their life. So if, excuse me, um, Chewie, for example, wanted to um, maintain his life debt with Han, I'd say that's a motivation. And I think in the movies it clearly is, but if in an alternate universe Chewie actually hated Han, he he's like, <laughs> man, this stupid um, this stupid life debt custom, I'm stuck with it because uh, all the other Wookiees will hate me if I break it. But I got to live with this guy. I mean, I live for 200 years and I got to spend six days of it t- stuck around with this human. What's up with that? Then that's definitely an obligation, and it's an obligation that it's really hard to get rid of (laughs) and somebody might have to think creatively and deviously about a way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that actually ties into something else I like about motivation and obligation where I really like the, actually this might be getting into a little bit into a later question as well, but I like the interaction of obligation and motivation where um, obligation sort of has its rewards for reducing it. You don't have as much obligation. You're not triggering it all the time. But I like it when it sets up to be diametrically opposed to motivation so that the players are always presented with that choice, right? right. They, uh, it's like, do I play to my motivation? Do I be a better person and then improve as a person by getting more experience that improves my character? Or do I do the responsible thing and I pay off my student loans and I never grow and I never experience anything, but I'm not in debt? Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> I don't. You, you don't have to do it that way. And um, location motivation don't always have to be opposed, but um, I like the situations that come up when they are. Cool. Cool. No, this, this is good advice. And that that's a good way to frame it. As to when something like a life debt should apply to either motivation or obligation, that too. I really, yeah. that's it's a good guideline. So we got another meaty question from Kalith uh, that mm-hmm. you can wax on about. Um, he says some of the specialization trees are obviously meant to be combined, even across careers, in order to maximize their benefits. Do you have a few favorite combinations? Uh, <laughs> any potential combinations you might advise a GM to keep an eye on in the hands of an irresponsible player? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'll the I'll answer the like possible broken combinations thing first, and luckily, um, luckily I um, oops, sorry, just a second. But sorry about that. Yeah, no, luckily I don't think there are, or I don't feel there are a lot of super abusive um, specialization combinations. 
the nice thing is that the way the scaling XP works is that um, getting more than two specializations, um, especially if you're going out of career, is going to start costing a lot of experience really fast. I mean, the second one's 20 in career, 30 out of career, and then, you know, 30 or 40 for the next one. It's generally not worth it to buy a bunch of different specializations just trying to get um, just trying to get a um, a minute advantage, right? Um, for you know, for example, the thing that springs to mind is some people might think, oh, a lot of specializations have uh, toughened at the bottom of the row. Well, if I picked up four specializations, I could pick up four toughens for five XP per toughened. But you're also spending thir- um, four specializations, even if they, even if most of them are in career. Um, yeah, it's you're closing in on 100 XP just to get access to those four toughens. So you probably would have been better off just buying down to the bottom of the talent tree and um, getting the t- the extra toughen that was in there. So, sorry, that's a long story. <laughs> that's a long way of saying. There aren't a lot of really abusive combos because it's generally better to buy deep rather than buy broad, mm. at least in my mind. Um, I find that's now, true in my love life, too. <laughs> Rimshot! Oh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awkward! <laughs> nice, nice. No, um... Yeah, but <laughs> now my brain totally derailed. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Dave's absence, I have to be, you know, I have to be the man who orchestrates those turns, right? No, that, no, absolutely. You got to do what you got to do, man. <laughs> no, um, so to answer the first half of that question without getting into the um, possibly, possibly R-rated um, portions of the conversation. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Um, as far as good combos, um, I mean, I have my own personal favorites, um, obviously, and I think one is the pilot scoundrel because my favorite character in the um, my two favorite characters in the show are absolutely Han and Lando, and I feel like they're <laughs> both pilot scoundrels. Um, maybe not, maybe not necessarily just pilot scoundrels, but there's definitely that sort of the core of their being. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite combos because it's so it, I feel so iconic to me. But I think you can do a few other interesting things like um an interesting one might be fringer mercenary soldier for example. If you wanted to play a soldier who was just as tough as he was a good fighter, the fringer actually has a lot of um a lot of little extra survivability things like durable and um it gives you toughened a couple times and it gives you rapid recovery and it also has that little piloting subtree which um can represent you know your soldier being able to fly a little bit which makes sense for a star wars soldier and it also has the dodge stuff at the very bottom which would also be sweet for a soldier so that would definitely be a combo that i would like to play um Unfortunately, I can't say what my personal favorite combo is right now because one of the uh, specialization it uses isn't out yet. So, oh, you dink. <laughs> okay, 
I'll, I'll say that it starts with Fringer. <laughs> yeah. The first specialization I picked up was Fringer. <laughs> oh, tease, tease. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I couldn't <sighs> resist there. But, um, um, yeah, that that's one of my favorites. Another one would be Outlaw Tech and Gadgeteer is another one that just oh, obviously that, that, goes that together. That obviously right? goes together. That's, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plays off of the uh, plays off the rewards for uh, starting out with the um, gadgeteer bounty hunter, and then gets you all those extra talents you already had a few of to just really take advantage of them. And they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. After exactly. you buy, after you buy in, yeah. Oh, cool beans, dude. Well, what do you say we move to some combat questions? Absolutely, let's do that. Because uh, I mean, like the bottom line is that sometimes it. it it's really fun shooting stormtroopers in our imaginations. Um, and the combat rules in this system, they're, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, but several listeners did have some questions about them. Um, uh, this is an easy one. Uh, Lupex and Alien270 had a question about initiative. And they wanted to know, um, as initiative rules are, are simple, i.e. no difficulty, cool, or vigilance checks, um, should advantage, threat, and triumph, despair be spent as normal with those checks? Um. The answer of it is yes, but I'm going to give a caveat with advantage and um, threat. Although, as as you pointed out, since they're simple checks, threat and despair aren't going to come yeah, up all that often. they'll never come up at all, yeah. I would think. Well, it, it can. I mean, the GM could spend, theoretically... Uh, spend a destiny yep. point, yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean... He's only going to do that in a uh, in a situation where it, I think it really uh, calls for it. Like there's some horrible disadvantage yeah. the players don't know about, yeah. or he's actually trying to help out the players by giving them some destiny points before a tough fight, maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, so normally the threat and despair aren't going to come up as much, and so my caveat is since advantage is used as the tiebreaker for um, successes when you're determining initiative, I'd be be tempted to leave it as is unless you've got a lot of advantage. Um, When when I'm running games, I've noticed that um, the tiebreaker, the advantage number, is almost more important or at least as important as the uh, success number. Yeah, it's typically more important for me. Yeah, because it's like a lot of people get like zero to two successes, right? Yeah. And then you have to determine between them. So, but I'd say triumph definitely could be spent as with a normal check um, to represent maybe you getting the drop on someone or um, getting a chance to take a quick maneuver before combat even begins maybe like that's like you're about to get ambushed, but you rolled a triumph on your vigilance check and you dive into cover as the blasters start flying. Um, I ran with a guy once who who allowed us to spend triumphs in initiative uh, to gain a free maneuver in the first round, and that was kind of cool. Yeah, I, I think that's a I think it's a great idea. So cool. Yeah. Um, okay, another combat related question uh, coming from both Venthrak and Mister Baldwin. They wanted to know about the aim maneuver specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, aiming states that the bonus for aiming is lost if the character takes damage, but they're not sure what what kind of damage is this meant to be? Wound damage, strain damage, both. And uh, the, the reason for this is because if it is strain damage and strain damage counts to to break the aim, then suffering too strain to take a second maneuver. Uh, would that keep that second maneuver from being an aim because you're breaking the aim? 
<laughs> yeah, no, um, it's, it's a good question. And actually, I'm pleased to say that I can answer it very definitively. <laughs> um, so damage is part of the combat process, right? When you're hit by an attack, you suffer damage. And the damage is applied to your uh, wound threshold or your strain threshold. Um, however, when you suffer strain to take a second maneuver, uh... it's, it's never damage. It's, um, some, it's a, uh, you just take the strain and there was never damage that inflicted that strain onto your threshold. Okay. That, so we're, we're over, we're overcomplicating it is what you're saying. Yeah, a, <laughs> a little bit maybe. <laughs> um, but the, yeah. So the first half of the answer to the question is if you take damage, um, you lose the bonus for aiming and it's any kind of damage. It's strain threshold. I mean, damage to your strain threshold or damage to your wound threshold. Gotcha. The, did you, did you get hit with an attack? Yes. All right. You lost your aim. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Probably not going to come up a whole lot, um, since you only really benefit from up to two maneuvers worth of aiming, but, right. um, I, I could uh, in that aforementioned ambush situation, I could see it happening. Yeah, so good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the ambush situation, uh, CC uh, Atkins is curious, or C Catkins. I'm not sure. It's either CC Atkins or C Catkins. Um, <laughs> how would you handle holding an action uh, such as waiting to fire until the bad guy starts to pull the trigger, Reservoir Dog style? I'd, um, yeah, I would definitely handle the question, um, handle the situation narratively, just in the sense that um, to simplify the game and to make it um, work a little more smoothly, we did away with the concept of holding actions in exchange for having variable initiative slots. Right. So yeah, and so instead of holding your action, you sh- you can choose to go later um, to by taking a lower initiative slot. Um, if you're like if you're really trying to do something like right before the bat um like a uh, bad guy goes in this like in this example if you're just trying to outdraw them um that's enough of a uh, unique situation that the uh, gm could work out something like maybe that's what you'd spend your triumph from your initiative check on or maybe that um, maybe that's an opposed check between you and that particular bad guy. Maybe you don't even make it a full-on combat situation. You just pull it out and make it an opposed check to start out the com- start out the uh, round of combat. Um, but in general, yeah. So in general, we wanted to cover we wanted to cover situations like that with the uh, variable initiative slots and choosing which one you take. Um, and so straight up uh, gunfight at the okay corral uh, drawing things could be more could definitely be handled in a um, specific situation with an opposed check or something like that dude opposed cool checks mm-hmm. oh yeah. yeah there you go draw down on someone oh yeah absolutely um cool 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 Cool. <laughs> all right R- rikoshi needs some defense clarification he says, page 207 says that multiple sources of defense don't stack. Is this referring to personal sources of defense, or does this mean the defense from cover and the defense from armor don't stack? It does. That's a good question. And um, unless the source of defense specifically states otherwise, um, you know, it, it, unless, it's, unless the source specifically breaks that rule, it doesn't stack. So, um, yes, in general, if you have defense from your armor, and um, you have defense from your cover, you only get a certain amount of bonus. And the big reason that exists from a 
totally metagame reason is to avoid stacking too many um, bonuses and bloating out the dice pool too much. Um, and it also may mean that uh, if you need to uh, get some, if you, if you want to get a higher defense than your armored clothing offers, for example, maybe you just need to get in better cover and like get behind a trench or a uh, giant Duracrete building or something. But yes, in general, the two things do not stack from each other. So. Very cool. Yeah. Um, in a related question, JHS JHS uh, writes, he says, okay, admittedly, I'm decades out of touch. But why the lack of some sort of armor class? It makes sense to me for ranged attacks, but less so for melee. And I think what he's asking is, you know, that, uh, you know, for specifically um, melee, I mean, we have, a, we have a base difficulty, regardless of the, you know, targets, defensive capabilities, um, you know. Okay. Yeah. No, I see. I see what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, and the re and the reason for that is that the 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 system's predicated on the idea that it's your skill and environmental circumstances, especially in the case of uh, in the case of personal combat, that determine how easy it is to uh, shoot somebody or punch somebody. Um, the armor they're wearing, sort of like armor, you know, body armor in real life. Like, um, if I go, if I go punch somebody who's wearing a bulletproof vest, it doesn't make it harder for me to connect with them, but it is certainly going to make it um, hurt a lot less when they take the hit. So right. that's why armor mostly provides soak. Now, um, some pieces of armor do have defense associated with them, and those are pieces of armor that are specifically designed to deflect hits more than they are to absorb them, or maybe armor that's got a personal shield worked in or something like that. That makes sense. I mean, mm. and 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 obviously if you're getting into defensive talents, I mean, <sighs> at that point, that is to me more reflective of AC. It's going to increase the difficulty, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're, absolutely. You're, you're, you're and, trained at being able to deflect blows. Yeah, and I don't want to. And as a side note, I'm not, I'm certainly not knocking the concept of uh, AC from uh, um, you know in Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that. Right. Um, it's just it's a totally different mechanic. Like um, the whole concept of armor class and um, and make and rolling to hit the armor class and then doing damage beyond that. Like that's the whole system D and D's built. D and D's combat is really built around, and so we're just we just have a totally different system. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do, dude. Dude, that uh, that yeah. is that is where we uh, we ended. <laughs> where we decided that, that's to end. That's a lot of that's a lot of questions there. Uh, part one. Uh, part one of this super special secret interview uh, with <laughs> uh, with Sam Stewart and Jay Little. Um, really want to take the time to thank those two uh, for really taking their time for us, which is what it comes down to. You know, they don't they don't yeah. they don't have to do that. Oh, I know they don't have to. They don't they don't they don't have to, but but they choose to, and that's, that's right. The, that's the big deal, and that makes me just a little sad makes me happy well happy this makes me sad sad, but you know it's 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 happy sad it's you know i'm sad that i have to go i feel like steven seagal in executive decision you know i make an appearance i'm in the movie for 12 minutes and then i die (sighs) yeah yeah 
Yeah, dude, I can totally see that. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, though, you don't have Seagal's wicked ponytail, and that's what's missing. Oh. (laughs) All right, Gamer Nation. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, obviously, keep your keep keep a lookout going. Uh, within a week, we should have uh, part two of this super secret special episode up. Um, uh, with uh, again, massive amounts of questions that we did not have a chance to get answered. Um, still, plenty of of questions around combat, um, general game mastering and GMing, uh, starships and vehicles, the Force. Boy, do we have a lot of questions about the Force. Um, um, and then just, you know, again, just general questions about design of the system and development, uh, that we really want to get to. Um, there was a lot that were asked that we just couldn't get a chance to get into both interview segments, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, there was just way too much, uh, but it's pretty awesome. The ability to have two full episodes devoted to this and, Again, we really want to express our gratitude to uh, FFG and to uh, Sam and Jay for their time to do this. It's really do appreciate it. Thoughts of course. Oh, man. You guys, become a member of the Gamer Nation. Visit us at www.d20radio.com slash forums. Register. Post your mind. And call us on the, on the, uh, the Order 66 hotline. Uh, 262-D20-RADIO that's 262-320-7234 leave us a question for messages from the edge or uh, give us a liner you know like you heard off the top of the show tell us why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast because we want to know and while you're on the computer before it's too late nine days left head to Kickstarter and be sure to back the Order 66 project and hopefully we'll see you all at Gamer Nation Con in March of 2014 that's right, and uh, since the beginning of the show, uh, another module has been added by Fandom the Phantom Comics. Comics guys. Those guys are incredible. They wrote they yes. wrote they wrote these amazing supplements for Saga Edition back in the day. Yes, Fandom Comics is going to be adding a module. Oh, Ryan Keith, you guys are stone cold pimps. This swag pack just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I uh, I don't know what to make of it. Maybe we're going to have to run some of these modules at Gamer Nation Con. <laughs> yeah. At Gamer Nation Con. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have like nine games to play test at that point. (laughs) Oh, I am excited. Thank you all for your support. We are humbled and um, uh, can't wait for the next show. It's coming, guys. Part two. Looking forward to it. This is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And GM Dave saying keep them dice, all of them, rolling. This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. Mm-hmm.